0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Gray Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss old X-Men comics together. Uh, uh, As per usual, we got off track for a minute. We had the trial of Namor a couple episodes ago, which was a blast. Uh, and right after we recorded the trial, we got to see Namor in the World of Wakanda, or excuse me, the Wakanda Forever trailer, which is being uh, re- uh, the movie coming out. So that was kind of an exciting thing. Uh, last episode, we were with Tree Farrell. We reviewed the uh, the wedding of Yellow Jacket and the Wasp. So we've been off track for a minute, but we are back on with uh, X-Men number 52 today. So just as a quick recap and what we've been covering, uh, the X-Men are fighting Mesmero, who has built a desert base or city. Uh, and surrounded himself with latent mutants that he's clearly mind-controlling. He has a robot of Magneto working for him. (laughs) And he has somehow convinced Polaris that, or Lorna Dane that she is, uh, she is required because of blood to work for him. Uh, the X-Men were overwhelmed and fled. They have accused Iceman of being untrustworthy because he thinks Lauren is cute, or at least is pretending to. And uh, Cyclops has come up with the ingenious plan to dress himself in bondage gear as a red Viking and go back to, uh, to take them all down. We're going to get into that today. Today's issue uh, is called Twilight of the Mutants. Uh, it is written by Arnold Drake. Uh, Jim Stranko has quit the book, so we are back with uh, Don Heck and Werner Roth on pencils. Uh, John Tardeglion on ink and letters by Sam Rosen Uh, before we get to that however we're going to take some time to welcome our guests I am thrilled to have my friend Day Spring back on the show how are you Day Spring
1: what's up Familia? Chad thank you so much for having me back
0: it has been far too long my friend it's great to see you and uh it is a personal honor I'll talk about why today in just a minute but one of my favorite artists of all time Mr. Ian Churchill is on the podcast with us today how are you Ian I'm great thank you thanks for having me on this show so great to have you here. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Uh, Day Spring and then Ian. Uh, tell us your gender pronouns, where we might know you best from, uh, and then uh, you can plug your work a little later in the show. We'll do that at the end. Uh, and then uh, the question for today is: Tell us, tell us about the craziest costume you've ever worn.
2: Who are we going first? Uh, D- Day Spring, you
1: want to go first? All right. All right. So I'm Day Spring. I run the Power of X Men podcast. And we just got back from San Diego Comic-Con where we hosted a panel with Eric and Julia Lewald, Larry Houston, Dan Wiesenmeyer, and the voice of Rogue herself, Lenore Zahn. So it was a pretty crazy time. My pronouns are he, him, and the craziest costume I've ever worn, like me personally have worn? Yes. Okay. I did a 1960s Robin a couple of years ago. (laughs) So... I channeled my inner Burt Ward and it was for Halloween in Hell's Kitchen. So it was a wild time. Well, <laughs> I
2: many you should say that because I have worn an Adam West Batman costume at one
3: point. It's not, it's not the craziest one, but it does compliment your Robin. So there you go. Why well, I would be thrilled to be the Robin to your Batman. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you say that to everyone, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> I say that to everyone. Sure.
0: <laughs> Holy children of the Adam day spring. <laughs> uh, Ian do you want to go next yeah my name's Ian
2: um, I'm a comic book artist writer colorist pretty much do it all I guess Um been doing it for a number of years uh, predominantly for Marvel and DC um, I'm a Mr I'm a him I'm, I don't really know what my gender pronoun is but you know I'll answer to pretty much most things even if it's hey you over there you yeah. um, know and um, the craziest costume I ever wore was probably when I was about 20 I went as frankenfurter to the Rocky Horror Show oh fantastic! Oh. so I had the full-on you know bask and the, the suspenders and all that sort of stuff and a, a big red cape and a wig and stiletto heels the whole shebang
0: uh, yeah. lastly my name is Chad I use he him pronouns I saw this awful image or like a clip of Ted Cruz the other day, like at a rally going, uh, they're making our kids use gender pronouns in school now, but my gender pronouns are kiss my ass or some shit like that.
1: <laughs> what the hell? It was terrible. Did you say that from his, like a vacation resort in the middle of like somewhere I- bougie? I think it was one of those rallies where people have to like pay money.
0: I don't know, it was terrible. Anyway, uh, craziest costume I've ever worn. I didn't come out till I was in my early thirties and I never like felt attractive or anything before that. So I was probably 34 and I went to like a gay Halloween party where everybody dresses super slutty and ridiculous. And uh, I didn't know till I got to the party like everyone else there was over 60 or, or, or 55. And I was like 34. And I wore like this slutty cop outfit and uh and they gave out prizes and I won like the sexy cop award or like the sexiest costume award. And I was like, ooh. Can you describe the slutty cop? It outfit. was. It was. It was like a vest with no sleeves and like a little badge and a hat, and then like a pair of
1: shorts with a zipper, and that that was basically. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was thinking of like a Reno 911 like look there. Now you went full blown slutty cop.
0: Yeah, I. Uh, no, I, I, I
2: was.
1: I, I, I was thinking uh, George Michael
2: outside video. That's what I was thinking. Dad,
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, oh, you uh, were pot in that. <laughs>
0: Uh, I did not look like Cyclops does in his Eric the Red uniform, which we'll be talking about. Um, Now, uh, just as an announcement, after this interview, when we post this episode, and it's pre-recorded, I did it yesterday, I met with Steve Orlando, and we had a 30-minute conversation about the actual character Eric the Red, which is going to accompany this interview. So when I when I publish this, it's gonna say starring Ian Churchill in Spring and Steve Orlando. So for those of you that wanna hear all of that content, make sure to stick around till the end. Steve Orlando has been using the actual character, De- or Eric the Red, De- uh, Devin Shikari in his Marauders run. Uh, so you can hear all about that character if you stick around to the end of the episode. Um, I want to preface this. We're gonna start by uh, doing an interview with Ian today. Uh, Ian, I'm going to get like weirdly sentimental for just a minute, which is funny because I just met you. Mm. I grew up in a very repressed Mormon household as like the gay kid who was solving everybody's problems. And, uh, I was very, very like quiet and like didn't express myself a lot because I was too busy fixing everybody else. When I was 14, my mom married a guy who got very physically abusive. So for a couple of years in my house, people were getting smacked around. It was, it was pretty awful for a while. And I, I found comic books when I was about 15. And uh, one of the first runs that I really latched onto as a reader at that time was Cable. Uh, and that was your Jeff Loeb, uh, Jeff Loeb and you uh, writing the book. And the character of Cable, uh, as a person who has like a, a large source of power that he had to always keep contained in order to keep his techno-organic virus under control. Because if he ever let his power go, he would lose himself. And I remember, like, very poignantly as a kid, really relating with that idea of always having to keep myself contained because if I ever let my power out, I would be exposed, destroyed. And it's a weird emotional association that I have with that character, but it's indelibly associated with your art, which is so gorgeous. Uh, And so, Jeff Loeb, of course, is another hero of mine, but uh, I've had four or five interviews I've done on the podcast, and Nesenti as an example, where just people who were a part of my journey in my youth that really meant a lot to me. And your interpretation of Cable, even though you and I have never spoken, was such a seminal part of my adolescence in a weird way that it really it's really a huge honor to meet you today. So your art had an enormous impact on me during a very tough time. Uh, so weirdly sentimental, like having just met you, but thank you for the beautiful, beautiful work you did. Uh, it really meant a lot to me.
2: It's my pleasure. I'm I'm glad it helped you through a tough time. I uh, I never thought anything I ever drew would sort of like be that uh, fundamentally sort of like impacting anybody. That's crazy. Yeah, you know, I'm glad glad that it all worked out.
0: I was living I was living in a town in Idaho uh, where literally my my high school mascot was a potato. No joke. And (laughs) the only place to buy comics was at the grocery store. And I remember like standing at the spinner rack, like flipping through issues. So X-Force and Cable were my first loves. I really latched on to that character while I was having a huge crush on Cannonball at the same time. (laughs) That was a big part of my upbringing. So can we kind of start there? Uh, Tell me about how you got into your work at at Marvel initially. And then I, I know that Run on Cable was kind of your first big work. Tell us about your work with Jeff Loeb on Cable
2: yeah okay well i got into comics um i mean it's it's fairly well documented i've I've done a number of interviews so i'll try and uh, give you the highlights um i basically i was working as a graphic designer and there was a recession in the uk so um you know i was short on work and there was a convention in london um and i hadn't drawn comics for ages you know at, at high school and stuff but um but not for a long time. And I would still wanted to do it, I'd just been sidetracked into graphic design, you know, get a real job by your parents and all that sort of stuff. So uh, um, I had nothing to lose. Oh, actually, funny enough, at the same time, I did get an offer for a a graphic design job. And I'd just done all these pages, which I was gonna take to the convention in London. And I watched an episode of Star Trek. And it was Next Generation and it was the one with Q and Picard dies, I think it's called Tapestry. Picard gets hit in the heart and and Q gives him the opportunity to relive his life, correcting the mistakes that he made along the way. And as a result, he ends up as an Ensign on the Enterprise rather than the captain because he didn't take chances. So I just watched that and I had the opportunity of taking this graphic design job or taking the chance to go up to London and see if I could get into comics. So having seen that episode, It inspired me to go up to London, and uh, I went up there with maybe half a dozen pages, probably less actually, of a Captain America uh, strip that I I wrote and drew, Um, and it it wasn't very well drawn, uh, looking back on it, but you know, anyway, I took it along, and I was watching people getting reviewed, getting their portfolios reviewed, and uh, one guy in particular seemed to make sense, so I got into his line. Um, and once I got, um, to the, to the front of the queue, um, he took a look, look at my work and asked me if I was getting any work. Um, and I said, no. And he, he said, well, if you give me some, uh, uh, copies of this, I'll take it back to New York and we'll see what we can do about that. Um, didn't know who he was, uh, went out and got a beer. Uh, he walked past me a little bit later on and I tapped him on the shoulder and asked who it was. And it was um Bob Harris who was the editor of the editor.
3: Yeah. Oh wow.
2: So I was I was just very lucky, right place, right time, with you know, an ab- the ability to draw well enough to, you know, sort of like get his attention. Um, but ultimately just very, very lucky. He gave me a fake assignment, um, to see if I could hit the deadline, which I could. Um and uh, after that, I pretty much had constant work. Um, the next thing of any note I did was, I think, uh, the Deadpool miniseries. Um, mm-hmm. That was next. And that came about literally because I went. I was in New York uh, with my brother, we'd never been to America before, so we decided to go to America. And while I was there, I thought to myself, right, I'll go up and uh, see if I can get some more work from Marvel. I hadn't made any appointments or anything. Um, and luckily they let me in and I went up and I was hanging out in Suzanne Gaffney's office and, uh, she asked me if I wanted to do cable, uh, not, sorry, not cable, um, Deadpool miniseries. And I said, yeah, sure. Love to. So I did that. That was well received. And then I was offered the cable, um, issue, the one, the one where all the X-Men die, wasn't it? What, what number Yeah, is Yeah. That?
0: Cable number 20.
2: Cable number 20. Um, I was offered that. And I took it because, you know, work's work. Um, I wasn't overly familiar with cable, actually, at the time. Um, and uh, I was just happy to have the work. And uh, I was working with Jeff. I'd never met Jeff before, never spoken to Jeff before. But at, the back, <coughs> at that particular time, Jeff um, liked to phone up people and actually talk to the people he was working with. Um, he's probably still the same now, I don't know. Um but uh, it was it was great chatting to him on the phone and uh, and just talking the plot through and what have you. Anyway, that uh, did okay, I think. And as I understand it, um, Steve Scrooge was leaving, and going off to X Men. X Man, that was it. X men sure. If my memory fails me, you have to bear with me because it's a long time ago. Um, yeah, Steve Scrooge was going off to do X-Man, so they needed someone to do the cable um, issues on an ongoing as an ongoing thing. Um, Jeff liked what I'd done on issue 20, so said, can we keep this guy? Can we keep this guy and have him carry on? So I think it was Lisa Patrick was the editor at the time, and uh, she said, yeah. So uh, she called me up and asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said, yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and that's how, that's how it all started on, on cable. And I, I loved every minute of it. I mean, the deadlines were always really, really tough and tight. Um, but I was a lot younger then and, you know, I was just happy to have the work and I was cracking it out as, as fast as I could and, and having a whale of a time. And uh, yeah, happy days, happy memories.
1: Well, you, Ian, you're, we had you on for Cable 20 when we covered it on our podcast. And the amount of feedback we got about not only that issue, but you as an artist for it was next level. And a lot of scenes that happened in that issue are still homage today, especially when Cyclops and Jean go up to Cable and say, we were them, we were red and slim when we raised you. And that's something that comes back during Messiah Complex, for example. So your art, not only did you make those deadlines, but as a young artist, you left such a big impact on the X books and, and on such a monumental issue.
2: Thank it's an you. extraordinary
0: <laughs> issue. I just I just reread it and it's it's shockingly emotional. I have so many memories of it uh, from when I was a teen. It's gorgeous.
2: It's so well written, and I mean, Jeff's an amazing writer. And uh, I remember getting the plot through and thinking, this is like a movie, and I could see it all in my head before I even committed it to the page. You know, I just I instantly knew exactly where to put everything. But you know. I, I personally look back on it and I just see the flaws. I see the flaws in my artwork and, and all that sort of thing. But having said that, like a lot of people at the time, um, we were hired because of our storytelling ability rather than drawing pretty pictures, you know? I think to get into comics, storytelling is far more important than, than an actual sort of like artistic style. Um, and I'm still developing. I was, I was very lucky to be um essentially paid to learn on the job because um, when i first started i was i was very um my, my stuff was very cartoony um, and i asked some asked um, bob harris i said how am i going to get more work and he said well um, if you can emulate jim lee a little bit more you know chisel off some of your lines don't make them quite so rubbery and and, and what have you um, so i took that to heart and and it worked out for me um, and and it was during that issue that i was still trying to find my way through you know and learn how, as i went along um so that, so the you know the fact that it turned out so well it's just more luck than judgment um, but I'm, I'm i'm glad everybody liked it and that um spread that you just held up the one of uh, cable kissing domino um jeff specifically asked for that so he's got that on his wall somewhere i, uh-huh. I just gave <laughs>
1: The hardest uh, thing about this issue was Gambit right here. I think we talked about that. Like that, like the oh, yeah. at that. Gorgeous.
0: gambit has uh, got some boots on there. We're going to talk boots in today's issue too. <laughs> Eric the Red and Lorna Dane have some boots, man. <laughs> uh, uh, Ian, I'm largely unfamiliar with your work outside of Marvel, if I'm honest. But when I, uh, in preparation for this interview, I reread all of your Marvel stuff in a row. And I, I felt like I could see your art style change uh, from when you started on Deadpool to when you ended on Hulk. I think was your last stuff. Uh, uh, just yeah. a very, yeah. a very yeah. different, yeah. a very different type of, of art style, uh, focusing on. Yeah, oh, it's, sorry, it's, go
2: ahead. sorry, I was going to say um, it veers back and forth. That I, like I said, because I was learning on the job, I was pretty much swinging towards whatever was popular. So, if, so you know, when I first started, Jim was very popular. So, yeah, and like I said earlier, um, uh, Bob suggested that I make it more like Jim. So when Joe Maderera started becoming popular, my stuff got more cartoony again and started sort of like veering off towards Joe Maderera style. And and it it kind of, it swung back and forth between, you know, who was ruling the roost at the time pretty much (laughs) until I found my own footing, you know? Um, and, uh, and, it, and it's it's more just of happenstance than anything that I found a style of my own. It's my style now is kind of a cross between the way I used to draw um and uh and the way I always wanted to draw. So it's it's uh, it's it's a weird one. And I think I've gotten better as I've as I've gotten older. I, I look back on my older stuff and I can see the merit in it, and you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but I think I'm a far better uh illustrator now than I ever was. Sort of like 20
0: 30 years ago I feel I'm a writer I feel the same way when I look at my stuff from 20 25 years ago it's a very different feel than now uh but just to say out loud and this and and uh this isn't to to uh well if I think of the, the artists of my youth that I loved, Joe Majorera and and uh, Jim Lee are certainly on the list, but you're the top of my list in my youth. Like, I'm just like grinning over here because it was such, it's a big deal for me to meet you. I'm, I'm, I'm happy I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take the compliment because believe me, I don't get a lot of
2: compliments.
0: <laughs> when, uh, when you were working on cable, uh, uh, when you were working on cable, you got to uh, delve into the very complicated Summers family tree, uh, and we we've spent time on the podcast talking about Cyclops. We're about to spend a lot of time on Havoc as he comes up, uh, but you got Day Spring's least favorite characters, Nate Gray and Jean Gray, mixed in there. <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm throwing shade. I'm obsessed with
0: them. <laughs> But as well as uh, as well as Cable's future family with his uh, with Jen Scott and Tyler uh and rereading all of that was really fun as well. They had this this post-apocalyptic future that they come from uh, and then the weaving in of all the other storylines with Ozymand- Ozymandias and Blacksmith. And it was it just it was really great to go back into how just fucking complicated the X-Men were in the 90s. They're complicated now, but you go back then and it was nuts, man. All of the all of the interwoven timelines. Um, and then your Deadpool series, there is an image of a juggernaut running through fire when they're on the plane and the <laughs> plane blows up. Uh, there's this like double page spread of juggernaut on fire that like lives rent free in my brain. Uh, just <laughs> gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. I love it so much.
2: Thank you. I, I love drawing Juggernaut actually. He's one of my favorite characters to draw. Um, and it was it was just luck that it happened to be part of the, uh, the plot. So um, I was well happy with that. Um, He's and, and, and the covers as well with Juggernaut on with the reflection, I think, of Deadpool throwing stuff at him. I think it was some Shuriken throwing stars, wasn't it?
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I've been very lucky in my career. I can't really complain at all. I've got to draw all the major characters, pretty much most of the ones that I've always wanted to do uh, professionally. Um, so I can't grumble. I've been very, very, very lucky.
0: There's an iconic image of uh, one of your X-Men covers as well with uh, Wolverine and Jean Grey having a very intimate kiss. His hand is on her thigh. Uh, <laughs> you, tell us about drawing that one and how it was received. That was controversial. <laughs> That's probably the
2: most popular cover I've ever drawn, I think. Um, I've had to redraw it a number of times for different things as well with different characters, you know. Um, <laughs> people ask me to draw it all the time and uh it's. It wasn't even my idea. It was Joe Casey's idea. Um, we were in a bar in uh, New York somewhere, and I'd, I'd literally only just met Grant and um, and Frank, and uh, and the four of us were in the bar and trying to think up stuff to do for for the X Men. And Joe said, uh, "You know, we're going to have to have Jean Grey and Wolverine kissing on the front cover. It's going to be so hot." and all the fat boys are gonna go nuts. And he drew a, like a little stick man thing on a, on a, a napkin and said something like this. And I said, oh, okay, and I logged it in my brain. And then uh, when I got home, I just drew it out pretty much exactly as he wanted it. And uh, people have really sort of like uh, reacted to that. And uh, it's one of those covers that resonates with people, probably because of the passion involved in it, I guess. It's quite, like you say, you know, it's lovely. His hands on her ass and all that sort of stuff. So uh, (laughs) it's 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 probably as much as you could get away with at the time without having some sort of someone in Marvel sort of saying just just change that a little bit, you know.
1: Um, I love that story of you, Grant, Frank, and Joe at a pub after having a meeting with Joe Casada because that era of storytelling for the X Men was just so revolutionary it brought so many of us back to the books following what happened with onslaught i feel like the new x-men your run on uncanny brought everyone back to the x-books and that was such an incredible era to be to be part of
2: you know i enjoyed it every single moment of it um you know it was just a dream come true actually being often offered, offered the x-men because growing up uh claremont and Burn's x-men was my x-men that was the x-men that i uh, grew up with and, and responded to the most um so uh, so just being offered the x-men and being uh, able to contribute to that whole legacy i mean it just blows your mind especially i was a, I, that, that was 2000 wasn't it so i was still only 30 31 um back then i mean i'm 53 now so that's i've been in the business for 30 years i was 23 when i got in so um you know yeah
1: how did Uncanny X-Men come about again? Did did Joe come to you? Did- No, I, Mark
2: Powers offered it to me. He phoned me up, but like, it was just after New Year, I think it was. And I was out of uh, range of cell phones and I had to go to the top of a hill to
1: get the call. And he asked me if Other I was- must... yeah. <laughs> Your little Nokia cell phone? <laughs> yes, yeah,
2: it's was like, it's one of those little clamshell things. Yeah, you know, and and I had to go to the top of a hill to, to get a signal. Um, and he asked me if I wanted to do the X-Men. I said, yes, please. I wasn't going to say no to that. <laughs> so uh, that's that's how I got it. And then uh, um, then they flew me over to New York. And the four of us were up in the X offices, um, like you say, with Joe Quesada. Uh That's the first time I've met Joe Casada as well. Um, and he seemed like a sweet guy. You know, he's just like, yeah, never met me before. Big hug, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Um and we all just sat there and uh, and um, got on with it. Really, I guess I was blown away by all the stuff that Frank had done because I was, you know, they asked us to do our versions, our redesigns, perhaps of uh, some of the characters that would be in the books. And uh, I pr- I pretty much went the traditional route, you know, the spandex and stuff, with a touch of motorcycle um, leathers influenced by the movie, um, and. Uh, and then Frank brought out this this uh, sort of like a a three maybe eleven by seventeen sort of thing flip thing with uh, with all his designs and it, it, it drawn it in day glow markers you know those markers you can get that are really bright and sort of it was, so all the yellow bits were like day glow marker and all the. Um, All the the darker bits, the black bits, were just like um, a subdued grey. And they just really popped. And I thought to myself, I didn't know we were allowed to do stuff like that. That's fantastic. That's great. Um, And obviously that was the... uh, Oh, and Grant was very proud of himself for designing the logo that read New X-Men either way. So you could turn it upside down and it read the same as it did the other way up. Right. I thought that that was pretty neat as well. and uh, and so obviously that uh, uh, what Frank was doing was the direction we were going to go in. So after that, and I, once I knew that direction, I I sort of like rejigged all my designs and and made my characters for those issues that I was working on um, more in line with what um, Frank had designed. But uh, uh, the the Nightcrawler one I had fun with with his, uh, his his religious overtones, even though he was wearing like this leather
0: outfit. You know, it was, it was quite fun working on him. and when I, uh, when I first started collecting comics, I had like a cardboard box and I would like alphabetize and, and numerize them and, you know, keep them in bags and boards. And uh, by the I don't know, by the time I'd been collecting a couple of years, I had like six boxes and then it was 12 and then it was 20 because your collection just grows and grows. But there was like a stack of comics that I would read over and over that I would keep out because uh, I read them so frequently they would never go in the boxes. One of those was Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 18. I remember it sitting by my bed for a couple of years. Caliban, for some weird reason, is one of those characters that is so near and dear to my heart. And weirdly, I think that's the first time I'm mentioning this character on the podcast, although I love him. Uh, in that issue, you see uh, Kitty Pryde, uh being an absolute badass fighting saber tooth. Uh, Caliban is there. I must have read that story a thousand times when I was a teen. Uh, again, one of, one of the issues that I just revere uh, from when I was a kid. Uh, anything you want to share on that? Uh, I think you were with uh, Glenn Hurdling on that story, if I'm remembering right.
2: Um, you probably remember better than I. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I. I remember having fun doing it, and I remember drawing it. I remember the um, try. Uh, yeah, there was some unused pages from that because they, I think, they changed the script or something like that. I can't remember. I've still got them here, um, and I was trying to emulate Arthur Adams at the time when I first started that particular story. Um, and then it kind of evolved into however I was drawing as I as I went along, sort of thing. Um, I remember Kitty Pride had some really strange things on her costume, like I think it was like metal bits that went round and, and it didn't didn't sit well with me. So I had when it came to the fight scenes, I made a point of her clicking it off and turning it into some sort of like nunchuckery thing because. Yeah. Yeah. Then it, then, then it made sense to me if she if it was a, an actual useful part of her costume otherwise I couldn't see what the point was um, I remember doing that um,
0: that I was, loved that the, was that that the issue that convinced me to that Kitty Pride was amazing like and then I went back and read what? the 80s stuff later but that was the issue where I loved her
2: yeah she's a great character I like Kitty Pride a lot and I also liked the fact that Sabretooth was in it it irritated me that he had that muzzle thing on his, his face all the way through um, which, by today's standards, with the pandemic, is kind of ahead of his time, I guess. <laughs> had like a, a little mask. Um, but uh, I was happy that it was uh, set in the tunnels because that made backgrounds a lot easier. Because um, no one likes drawing backgrounds, and uh, uh, that made things, you know, and you could you could use the water and the shade to make some interesting, you know, sort of like um, variations to the background. And when you've got a kind of um, sewer scenario, it makes perspective look a lot easier than it yeah. would necessarily be, you know. So, that's that's it. it had had a lot of um beneficial aspects to it. Let's put it that way. That particular story,
1: you yeah, know,
2: I, I, I can't remember much more about it other than drawing it, trying to crack it out as fast as I could because the deadline was tight. Um, and doing the best I could while I was doing it. Um, it's beautiful, and, and thank you, thank and just being happy that it had. You know, two of the characters I liked the most at the time, which was Sabretooth and Kitty Pry. Um Caliban, I, I don't have a problem with Caliban. Um, I just wasn't overly familiar with him, really, yeah, yeah. Um, until that particular issue. Um, and he, he was fun to draw. Um, I liked drawing that cake. It was like a patchwork cake, wasn't it? With all sort of like seams
0: and, and stuff um, and threads and what have you. I had a fish, I had a beta fish in high school named Caliban. And then in my 20s, I had like <laughs> fish and I named them all Caliban.
1: I don't I don't know what it was about that character, but I loved it. Uh, Dasebrick, you had a question. Go ahead. Oh, no. Well, one, just to comment about Kitty Pride, that Kitty Pride you drew for that issue would be recycled for a lot of the trading cards, I'm which perfect. was epic. Yeah, yeah, they would be on. I'm forgetting which one, if it was the Masterworks or the or the Fleers, but it would be used. But my, my next question for you was going to be, you know, you're being told to emulate Jim Lee, you're emulating Art Adams, you know, later on it will be Joe Mad. As, as an artist, how do you balance your own style while also trying to emulate someone else's style?
2: I think my my style has developed over the years to the point now that I actually do have my own style. Um, and yeah. back then it was very fluid, I think. And I think the suggestions that I got from all sorts of people, but... Um, Bob initially uh, to emulate Jim or Arthur or or what have you. um, I think that helped me a lot because you learn by trying to draw like somebody else. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's because you kind of you kind of absorb the way they do things, um, just by studying the way they draw. Um and when you're trying to Sort of take the best aspects of what they do and add it to your own style, it does propel your style into becoming something more than it was initially. Um, you know, if you actually look at Jim's stuff, uh, I don't know if either of you ever have, but I, I've scrutinized it a fair bit over the years. He tends not to draw the specific body parts of a person when he's, he's drawing. He tends to draw a shape of it and then render the body parts into the shape. If that makes any sense or it seems to me that's what he does i've never actually watched him do it but i've, I've picked apart some of his, his, his drawings and if he's drawing like a, a figure that's going like that sort of thing he'll draw the shape of the figure and then do all the rendering to make it work within the shape that he's drawn rather than actually drawing each individual muscle and making it sort of like. Nece- it's a, it's a remarkable wa- remarkable way of doing it. and uh, I've
0: taken bits and you know bits of the way he does that to my style. Uh, my, my podcast is uh, largely about the 60s books. and ironically, we're going to look at the pencillers Werner Roth and Don Heck in today's issue. Uh, and they were both mm-hmm. given direction. They, they did a lot of romance comics and things like that. They were both given direction when they were hired by Marvel to try to emulate Jack Kirby as much as they could. And they're both can, talented yeah. pencilers in their own right. but we're picking up today's issue right after Jim Stranko came in for two issues and mm. just blew the art out of the water. I mean, those they're so fondly remembered because it was something so new. And then we're getting right. ready to get up on Neil Adams' run on the book, which is again, something revolutionarily new. They they were given the freedom to draw their own rather than to try to emulate someone else. Uh, and I, mm. I think it's interesting for artists, uh, you look 50 years later and that's still kind of happening. Yeah. Like uh, people either being given the freedom or being yeah. able to emulate someone else.
2: Now everybody's got the freedom to do what they want, but um, people will try and channel you in one direction you know because if that's doing well like for argument's sake like you were saying Jack Kirby he he was selling like gangbusters wasn't he so if, if everybody draws more like Jack Kirby then you sell more books in general you know so I think that, I think that's probably w- and because of you know how dynamic he was as well I mean'm I'm, I'm not a massive Jack Kirby fan I prefer Ditko and Ramita senior personally but I can I can totally understand why everybody loves Jack Kirby. And I can understand why people were sort of like um, encouraged to draw like him, and and uh, and like you say, it still happens now. It's it's one of those things. It's 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 like taking or pointing at one of the most popular artists in your particular time and saying, try and do do try and make it a little bit more like that because you'll be better for it. Um, and, and, and it worked with me. I think it worked with a lot of artists, you know, not necessarily now, but um, as, as well as now, but, you know, um, further back, like you say in the 60s as well.
1: And doing those comps. I mean, as far as I understand it,
2: John Meeter Sr. was always encouraged to do more like Kirby as well. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, interesting. yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's funny, publishing is, I used to work in book publishing, and comps like that is just something that goes a long way with like the sales team and mm. stuff like that. So if we sign up a new writer, We'd be like oh you have more of a joan didion comp and you list that on your sales sheet and mm. it helps with sellers so i can see that it's really interesting how publishing works mm. in that regard that you, like you were saying jack kirby sells a lot so we have this new artist that's like jack kirby and taking a risk and telling people to be their own even though it happens mm. is still something that's a risk from a marketing sales perspective
0: mm. Mm. yeah totally uh day spring i know you're first and outside of your husband of course your first love is always nate gray uh uh when you uh when you picture nate gray where do ian's versions of nate gray stack up with other artists versions of nate gray
1: i mean so Ian, you did the cable versus nate gray spread which <laughs> i that's it that's that that is my image of nate always those two battling it out i you know, it's funny. I associate you with the Cable Number Twenty, that like mm-hmm. penultimate thing before X Man comes in. But then mm-hmm. also your work on um, the 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 post Age of Apocalypse stuff, where it was more like the backstory, and you did That's that. True. Yeah, yeah. yeah that we talked about it, like that big spread of the team, and. You know, the thing about your art that always resonated with me and, and why I was so excited to come back to the books when you were coming on during the new X-Men era, was that you had such a distinct style and there was so much high octane electric energy in your panels. And as I've grown older, I realized it's not only the actual art you've done, but also your method of storytelling. And like the view you give the the reader coming in. So I think your Nate Gray is perfect. I think that cover with Jean and Wolverine is perfect. I even think inside the issue, when it happens, when when Wolverine is like, this is it, darling. This is the end. And the actual kiss that takes place, which is not as sexy as the cover, but Jean is kissing Logan and her hair is flowing that way. I mean, I just, I see it cinematically. I see it in my head. And when they bring the x-men into the mcu i should hope how you presented it from a cinematic perspective is sort of what we would get on the big screen
2: that's very nice of you to say i looking back i don't see a style of my own but you obviously did And, and and it's important to me that people that liked what i did back then did see a style of mine that separated me from other artists because um that's, that's part and parcel of really distinguishing yourself, I guess.
0: You definitely um, have a style. I remember a cover that had, uh, oh, I don't have the issue ready. You had a cover with Cyclops uh, kind of turned. And I remember as a youth picking that up. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's Ian Churchill. That's Cyclops' jawline. And then I opened the book and you weren't the interior artist.
1: And I was like, oh. <laughs> 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 yeah. I mean, I, I have to, I mean, not to be shady. You don't have to say anything to this. But when you left Uncanny, I was like, ah, you know what I mean? It just, we. I was picking up, I, I think Joe Casey is a great writer, but I think we picked up that run because, you know, the selling point was Ian Churchill there and the art was really great. I mean, your, your redesigns for Nightcrawler for Angel with that shaved head, Utopia and
0: Sugarcane, there's so much good stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I, it, it is so great. So, I mean, I have to tell you, I, I understand your perspective as the artist, but as a fan and podcaster now, I can tell you that era, people were really excited for you on Uncanny. So
2: that, that's really nice to hear. That really is nice to hear, actually.
0: Uh, to tie um, everything together, uh, this is total just throwing it out there. Do you remember creating a character called Carver? Oh. So this was in your Wolverine run with Rob Leifeld. Uh They're they're fighting the Moon Man. No, have a
2: clue one clue. Uh, was one? Uh,
0: Carver was like a leather daddy that lived in the sewers. <laughs> Big cigar. Yeah. He wore a lot of leather. He's yeah. like
2: yeah 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 yeah. I remember. Yeah
0: yeah. So just to tie it all together, he, he only appeared in in when you drew him, but Steve Orlando, who's going to be after this interview, he's not part of our conversation now, brought Carver back in his Marauders recently. Uh, really? For his second funny. appearance. <laughs>
3: so there's our
0: there's our tie-in between Ian Churchill and Steve Orlando is this random yeah, leather daddy tour guy.
1: That's right. <laughs> Love those deep cuts. Like Steve is notorious for those deep. Uh, for I was going to say those Steve cuts, but those deep cuts. We can call them Steve cuts. <laughs> I, uh, I too bro- you know, am that, a man. lover of deeps. That's,
2: like- That's got to be like twenty years ago, twenty-two years ago, something like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You're like, oh, that no. <laughs> blows my mind. <laughs> that wait, 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 Ian, this mm-hmm. is something I'm remembering from our interview. You didn't draw Stacy X. But you created Stacey X, like you did I, the design I her. designed her, uh, yeah. I never drew her in the comic because
2: okay. uh, I'd, I'd left by then. but I, I designed the look of her, the original look of her. Okay. Um, it probably got extrapolated on by the person that took over, um, but I've still got the original design here somewhere, um, knocking around the studio. Yeah,
0: I didn't know that fact, st- that's amazing.
2: Well, it's um, the same, um, same with Red She-Hulk as well. I I kind of co-designed um, Red She-Hulk's look as I well. Um, because uh, when I did the Red Hulk storyline, I was, I was filling in for Ed, um, and Jeff had just introduced her. So there are a couple of loose designs that Ed had done. And Ed, M- Ed McGuinness. Into- yeah, yeah, Ed McGuinness, yeah. And then um, Jeff faxed over... Um, the loose designs that he had done. He said, if you can sort of like extrapolate from that and add to it or make it your own, do whatever. So um, it was my idea to put the belt around her cleavage to stop the thing from, you know, the, the, the ripped clothes from sort of like passing ways, let's say. Um, <laughs> <and> <laughs> to help keep her modesty. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I co-designed that, uh, Red She-Hulk with, uh, with Ed. Um, and I was the first person to draw Red She-Hulk as well, in, uh, in the uh, red
0: store. This spring and I've
2: Incidentally, friends... going back uh, to what you were saying earlier with Blacksmith, did he ever get used again?
0: He has not been around in a long time, but he has been used since your run with him, yes.
2: Okay. Okay. Because I liked Blacksmith and Jeff and I sort of like created him on the fly as we were going along. I didn't have a lot of time to... To, to draw him, and originally he looked more like a fly. Um, he had like, a, so when I was first sort of like drawing the designs and stuff, with like the bug eyes and, and stuff, but- uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think Connor was quite happy with it.
0: I think Connor Goldsmith on Cerebro calls him Blacksmith, because it's the Q-U-E. <laughs> Uh Day Spring and I've become friends outside of the podcast. We chat a fair bit, and uh, after I saw his interview with you, uh, it was months ago when I was like, "Oh my god, I would love to interview Ian Churchill." Uh, I just wanted to say how lovely it's been to communicate with with your wife Sasha as well. She's been amazing wow. to coordinate with. Uh, so just tell her thank you for me. It's been a, it's been a, a joy way. to have uh, such easy communication
1: style. I I have to tell you, Chad has never fanboyed out over an episode than the one we did together, and he immediately (laughs) me, and I was like, "You got to talk to them." I mean, if he's your hero, he was so he was everything you wanted him to be and more.
0: Oh, that's so sweet! Thank it's you. It's a big deal for me, uh, and uh, I, I've interviewed like Roy Thomas and Nascenti, who are also huge heroes of mine, and uh, everybody that I've interviewed on the pod, I love, of course. But yeah, you're one of you're one of my like top ones for mega. They're like, yay! This is amazing. So uh, I, I hope your head is getting bigger as we talk to you. It yeah, <laughs> is. I'm not going to it out of the room now. think it's, it's great. No, I love the compliments. Compliments. You can keep keep coming <laughs> with compliments
2: as much as you like. I'm quite happy to take them. I'm so so not used to getting compliments.
0: I'll, I'll take it all. Uh and, exactly. and just as a side note, Day Spring, I got to follow through Instagram your adventures in San Diego. What a big, big fucking deal that was for you to put those panels together and to organize things. I hope it gave you amazing exposure for what you're doing. I think your your work in the podcast and especially the community built are just incredible. I'm happy to have you with, with a friend, but just Uh, person to person what a huge what a huge moment that must have been for you uh i'm I'm so honored man that's amazing
1: oh thank you you know lenore zan was who who voices rogue in the original x-men series and it's coming back for x-men 97. it was all her you know she she came you know i came to her with an idea and she wanted to do it and we brought her to san diego comic-con and it was wild You know, it's uh, we threw a happy hour and the entire X-Men 97 team came, which was really nice. Yeah, we're excited for that revival. And the panel was very well received. And Bo DiMaio, who was who is the showrunner for X-Men 97, announced exclusively there that Larry Houston is going to be directing the opening sequence for X-Men 97, which is a huge deal, obviously. Yeah, we we lucked out. But man, I, I, I may have built the house. I may have been the theater house, but it was Lenore, Larry, Bo, everyone who brought in everything. So-
0: It's still a big uh, deal. And I'm going to talk to you because I definitely want to meet Lenore's
1: aunt now. (laughs) Oh, yeah, 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 she's she's incredible. But I want to give a shout out to my co-host, Michelle Waffle-Otero, who did come to me with the idea for San Diego and was absolutely extraordinary. So nothing could have been done without her.
0: Michelle is wonderful. She's coming back on the pod in just a few weeks. Uh, so this is a good time to transition, I think, into our issue review for today. We're jumping into X Men uh, number fifty two. Uh, like I said, Storanko has just left the book, so I think Don and uh, Don Heck and Werner Roth jump in for the pencils. Oh, Ian, go ahead. Can I just ask? Um, do you know why Storanko left the book? I, Stranko, my understanding, I've emailed Stranko. I doubt I'll get him on the podcast, uh, but I have emailed him. My understanding is he just could make more money in advertising. Uh, the sequentials, uh, okay. the way he was being heavily edited, I think it just didn't appeal to him. He only stayed around for a couple of issues. He also did, of course, his infamous run on uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, but mm-hmm. after these two revolutionary issues, I think he just I think it just didn't appeal to him Is kind of the understanding I got. And he's had a long career after this uh, and is still working. Mm-hmm um mm. uh, doing all kinds of things but he uh he i think he's 83 now if i'm remembering right um but yeah he uh i think it just didn't I, it just didn't work for him i've had i i've had roy thomas on the pod and uh if i ever have him back on i'll ask him that question directly like what happened to jim Strago? because uh because we loved his work it was it was great i was i
2: was reading those issues last night in prior to this uh x-men 52
0: so you can figure um, out what the fuck is happening in this book.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and I'm still not entirely sure. Um, but I was, there was a, we were talking earlier about people trying to emulate Kirby. And there was some specific bits in there that I thought that's so Kirby. There's one, there's a uh, a side on panel where Cyclops is hitting someone. He's got his leg out. Oh, yeah. yeah. Horizontal, like a yeah,
0: full and it's
2: <laughs> Such a Kirby pose. It's such a Kirby pose but he did it so well and it's 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 obviously not Kirby it's Taranko, but um, you can certainly see the influence there
0: yeah yeah that uh, that jarring like double page spread where you turn the page and it's the car driving through the desert with the city of mutants carved into the you know like it's it's pretty stunning and then of course he created Lorna Dane who uh, who is just uh, her design is just incredible I've got, oh, I'll have to show you guys at the end. I've got a Lorna print to add to my wall. Uh, I'm releasing it today. I'm super excited. Anyway, uh, let's look at the cover of X-Men number 52. We've got uh, Cyclops in, uh, in red bondage gear. <laughs> he has named himself after an old Viking. Uh, he is in uh, boots and uh, leather short shorts and a, and a harness and a da- daredevil like helmet kind of thing. He has rewired his optic blasts to come out of his fingers somehow. Uh, and the it's X-Men, it,
2: isn't it? The
0: X-Men it and Robot Magneto were like, oh, no. <laughs> tell us uh, tell us your thoughts on this cover. Maybe are we talking to? Uh, you, just both of you. Yeah, whoever has I think,
1: it. I think the professional should go first, because I'm still wrapping my head that his optic blast is coming out of his fingers. I don't understand how that works out. Like, the costume no. isn't even connected.
2: And <laughs> like it's, how... and it's, it's not explained either anywhere in yeah. the issue, is it? It's all. Or, and I, I thought it was a real leap from the last issue as well to suddenly have Cyclops show up in this costume. Um, I think the last uh, the last issue the costume looked a lot better um, because there were no skin parts showing. That, the final page of fifty
0: one, yeah, yeah. Mm,
2: it looks it actually doesn't look too bad there. It looks pretty pretty cool. Um, but uh, as soon as you have
1: the skin parts showing, it just looks a bit silly. I think. I I'm curious about the comics code authority here that they would let something like this slip through I mean because he's wearing a corset that goes up to his nipples and has like that sort of like the heart shape And, and and the boots and his thighs out it's. I love it. Don't get me wrong. And I think it's fine. But I'm thinking in when this issue was published and you had that authority over it, why that wasn't flagged when I think they've flagged other innocuous things in the past.
0: I'm picturing teenage Chris Claremont reading this and thinking, ooh, bondage gear, we should create the Hellfire Club.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, listen, I, I think the subtext of, you know. Fetish and 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 body is always going to be present within like the comic book genre, and so I understand why this is here and I have no problem with it. But for others who wouldn't have, I'm just curious about it. It's it's a very hypersexual costume. Mm.
0: There are a like, lot of moments. Throughout. Oh, sorry, Ian. Go
2: ahead. So I was going to say it's only looking back on it with a modern perspective that you see that, but don't you? At the time, I guess people just thought, oh, it's another cool costume. No. And <laughs> and, reading, and reading the issue, it, I, I felt very much. That it kind of, from a modern perspective it seems to be aiming directly at kids rather than sort of like older um, people you know sort of like uh, teens or early 20s it, it seemed to me just reading it, it that it was aimed at sort of more sort of like 8 to 12 year olds yeah um, I, uh, but I, I don't know Sure, that's just the way it came across while I was
0: reading it last night my eyes go to Cyclops's thighs right away <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure oh, there yeah, were many, many gay men in the 60s picking up this book. <laughs> oh, he was, oh, he was, was like Dan's Uh There are a lot of moments through, through all comic book history, but X-Men history is specific, where you see characters kind of shed layers. They'll cut their hair, like storm into the mohawk, or they'll, or they'll start wearing a skimpier version of their costume. And it's almost like a sign of liberation. Like, I'm tired of being repressed. I'm going to own who I am. And this is Cyclops' moment. He's, he's the most <laughs> buttoned up guy. And uh, he's putting on something very revealing. I want to think that Gene helped him design this. And he's like, you know what? I'm gonna be free.
2: <laughs> in, in, in this whole issue, though, he is so not like Cyclops. And and in the previous two as well, he's not buttoned up. He's he's fighting with Iceman, he's getting all emotional about this, that, and the other. I, it was so out of character from my you know, reading it for Cyclops. But as a cover, that's a cracking cover, despite the um, despite the shortcomings of the costume let's say um it's a really dynamic cover and it it works really well for me um i personally would have liked to have seen the other characters colored in rather than blue Um, but that's just a personal um preference um but i think on the whole that's that's really strong cover
0: Spring, let me ask for your parallels. Cyclops dressing down here as Eric the Red versus in the modern book, Cyclops changing into Captain Krakoa, which is weirdly kind of a similar trend. I almost wonder if uh, the writer's meant to emulate this story. Uh, any thoughts on that?
1: Well, you know, the one thing I'm really loving about the Krakoan age is that there are homages back to earlier issues and character history, I believe hickman said when they were doing Hawksbox fox that x history matters so i think to that to to your point chad i think cyclops taking on a temporary identity and you know having a similar costume vibe is well within the character's scope i i was curious if captain krakoa was going to stick around a bit longer in the comics and that was going to sort of be cyclops's new identity or it would have been passed on to someone else but it looks like that is just temporary. So yeah, I mean, this is this fits perfectly within Cyclops' history, which, you know, he'll switch identities when when needed to get the mission done. So yeah, I definitely see that.
0: Uh, and then Ian, before I even start my review, I just want to ask you right away, what do you think of Mesmero's costume design? God, this guy's He's a like... fucking weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> He's
2: not my cup of tea, personally, but it's okay. Yeah, um, he looked more like a snake. I, I think with that, with that cobra sort of like um, cowl thing, it looks co- kind of more like he should be one of the uh, the serpent squad rather than uh, one of uh, Magneto's cronies. But that's just uh, an observation, not a criticism. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've mentioned on the it's just pod. An <laughs> I've mentioned on the pod the last couple of weeks. Mesmero is not a character I've ever given any thought to. But as he appeared in this book, I went through and I read his whole publication history. He's a villain. This guy's a bad, bad guy. And uh, we're going to put him on trial soon. Uh, We have our Mm -hmm. infamous trials on Gray Malkin Lane. Uh, But we're also going to hold, and I've talked about this in the podcast a little bit, uh, shortly after the trial, we're going to hold a panel. It's going to be all female guests where we're going to analyze villains who have mind control powers who use them for sexual assault. And that's a really heavy topic, but we're going to talk about the changing portrayal of that across the decades, uh, starting with Mesmero and then kind of going into the Purple Man uh, in the infamous, you know, alias Jessica Jones stuff. It's gonna be a really, really interesting discussion where ho- I'm hosting in a few weeks.
2: Not not to forget Star Fox as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh I have a whole I have a whole yeah, yeah. there's so more so many more than you think. This it's like a common trope like hey
2: and that there was that issue with the um the Avengers wasn't it um when, when Miss Marvel became pregnant.
0: Scarlet Centurion oh. made Miss Marvel give birth to herself or to himself. Yep that's oh, yeah. on my list too. Yeah. There's not only images of Mesmero in the future, walking by some girl on the street and being like, follow me home, like you're mine now. Uh, But he actually sexually assaulted Mesmero as well. I'm sorry, he sexually assaulted Marrow as well in the Weapon X series. Uh, So there's some interesting things. We're gonna have some conversations about it later.
2: Yeah. yeah. Does, Does Bobby Drake have mind control powers? Because he bumps into Lorna Dane, never met her before and says, hey, babe, come back to my place. And she says, sure, okay. She you says, know, she you, says,
0: I, I suppose I could, but I'm not really in my right mind or in control of myself. Like she literally says out loud, I can't give consent. And he's like, yeah, come on back here. Come <laughs> on back. You just met me, but hey, you know,
2: complete strange is as good at it as anything, isn't it? You know, it's kind we'll, of cra- kind we'll talk of about Lorna
0: here, but my theory is that Mesmero is fully in control of her mind. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So let me jump into the first five pages really quickly. Uh, we've got uh, this, this bizarre plot. So Eric the Red just showed up at Mesmero's base again. People think Magneto is real. We're going to learn in a couple issues, he's actually a robot. He's been disabled. So they mentioned multiple times, he can't walk or do things right now. Uh, So Lorna is staying at his side, clearly mentally influenced by Mesmero, who has still surrounded himself by his terribly dressed mutant army, uh, none of whom are named and only a few of whom have any sort of powers that we know of. So uh, we have this weird first page where the X-Men are in like weird Christmas ornaments or like a cameo locket (laughs) off to the side. It's a strange look. Uh, the, uh, the worst Christmas decorations ever. <laughs> uh, Mesmero is furious that Eric the Red is there. He cannot uh, handle any competition. I think Cyclops is probably following Jean Gray's instructions and staying out of Mesmero's line of sight so that there's no possible way he can get control of him. Uh, Cyclops proves his worth. He uh, he battles the army a little bit. And then on page three, he zaps like a live wire that causes some sort of explosion Mesmero and his men are locked behind this and cyclops clearly has plotted this very very well very very carefully uh and he is working really hard there's there's some great sound effects on page two we get ba wa wa wam, which is (laughs) a particular favorite in uh in comic book history uh uh cyclops then runs to find or eric the red runs to find lorna dane who is very much conflicted uh, clearly, again, Mesmero is influencing her, her somehow. She's in full costume. She's covered up some skin based on her original look. So she's a little more green and a little, little less naked now. And she keeps thinking things like, I wish I was free. I wish I could go to the X-Men, but because of my blood, I have to stay loyal to Magneto. I have to, which again is is kind of indicative. Now in Lorna's history, uh, Peter David in the far future in X-Factor tells flashbacks to her life prior to this. And just to remind readers or listeners, I mean, she uh she is the the daughter of Magneto but she doesn't know it because when she is an adolescent she hears her parents on a plane arguing her mother and stepfather uh she uh that argument about Magneto being her dad causes her to lose control of her powers for the first time and the plane crashes and her parents are killed Magneto and Mastermind then come up and Mastermind manipulates her personality he removes her memories of this event and then she's adopted by the Danes or her I think it's her father's Sister and her husband, if I'm remembering right. Uh, so we're going to see them referenced in this issue. But Lorna's had her mind messed with since she was a kid. So we had Mastermind at the beginning, Mesmero later, uh, and she's got some. Uh, she's she's losing her will here a little bit. Uh, uh, Eric the Red convinces Lorna that he is an ally. She goes to Magneto, who's just like a little head in the corner. <laughs> That's all we get of him on page five, uh, and uh, and he is. Um, he is uh, willing to let Eric the Red work with them because they have no other choice. Mesmero and the army are locked away. Eric the Red immediately says, "Well, I'm in control. Then you have to uh, you have to let me be in charge." Uh, so, tell me your thoughts on this first five pages, and then I have a couple questions for you guys. What, what, how do you think about the the beginning of this issue?
2: I wasn't aware that she was under the influence of Mesmero at this point. It just all seemed a bit. Um, I think
0: it's bird It doesn't say it directly.
2: Yeah, and she and she'd never met Magneto before, but suddenly because he he's told her that he's her father, she just goes along with it and doesn't make any choice of her own. Or I guess, I suppose that is because Mesmero's messed with her, but it didn't come across like that to me. Yeah, ice I... like...
1: I flagged the line. This man is my father. Evil as he may be, I cannot forget that his blood runs in my veins. I must defend Magneto with my very life. I was like Lorna.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. and it's a Ma- <laughs> and it's a Magneto robot, which means Mesmero's behind all this. It's never been quite stated, but I think Mesmero's plot. I feel like he learned about Lorna somehow and put this big plot together to get this girl under his control. He had this robot. Does, Mesmero,
2: does, does Mesmero know that it's a a Magneto
0: robot. Is that uh, yeah, yeah, he had he had the robot built, uh, but then again, in a few issues, he seems surprised when the robot's destroyed. So continuity's oh, yeah. kind of gone both ways. The robot is built by Star Saxon or Machine Smith, if you know that character. But it's kind yeah, of a I throwaway know. line in a handbook that they reveal later. It's it's never quite been. Uh, I I feel like Mesmero's behind it all, but it might be he's okay. being manipulated by this robot and a Machine Smith plot too. It's a little bit confusing.
2: Okay yeah yeah just definitely a little bit
0: easy
1: can i ask um, a question
0: Where, where's muted city supposed to be located it's in the american southwestern desert that's all we know
2: okay <laughs> and, and they live in new york don't they? so that's yeah. quite a distance to go but, yep. yeah okay yep. I, I can go with that
3: and they're like just so uh... happy
2: an Avengers quinjet standing by because they lent it to them i mean that's yeah. I, can, I can i can roll with that it makes no sense but i can roll with it
0: or maybe they're hanging out in like Albuquerque waiting for Cyclops to call. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to throw out here too. This is kind of an interesting through line. This is the first example in X-Men where we see a mutation pass on genetically. So Magneto has magnetic powers. Lorna Dane has magnetic powers. Uh, Ian, you got to draw Siren, who's the daughter of Banshee. They both have si- sonic screams. Uh, can you guys think of other examples? Dayspring, you might be a good one to ask for this. Where, uh, where we see a mutation pass on from parent to child. Yeah, Rachel, Gene, and Rachel. Mm-hmm. I was going to say the telepathy from Gene and the and the uh, the energy manipulation powers of the Summers brothers. All of them have different versions of it.
1: And in an alternate, you know, future, we have Ruby Summers, who is a hybrid of Cyclops and Emma's powers. Right. It's interesting because often kids, you look at the Guthrie
0: family where they all have very different mutations, but sometimes you see yeah. it pass on genetically. It's an interesting thing. Makes sure well, you wonder if sinister's to- involved. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's funny because I mean, I know it has yet to be revealed, but I was talking on our podcast about Miss Marvel and how she had inherited her powers. And I was like, oh, but Gene, like the X Gene, like powers aren't really inherited, but that's sort of, yeah. I mean, it's not a real argument because we see so many examples of that. Sure. You know, in the is, books. Is, um, is Nightcrawler Mystique's son still? Yes. Or is that? Yeah. Oh, so, Azazel and... Yeah. So their yeah. looks
0: are still quite very similar, aren't they? You
1: know? yeah, they've got bu- yeah, they've
0: got blue skin, but shape-shifting and yeah. teleporting. So yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. And Professor that X... Kind of Azazel, his dad. Yeah, well, Professor yeah. X has telepathy, and then Legion's got this, like, a mega, yeah. like, uh, yeah. multiple personality thing going on. It's, I don't know, it's interesting to consider. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Dayspring, take us through pages 6 through 10. What happens next?
1: Yeah, so then we have Operation Twilight, which is in full effect. And Cyclops, using Gene's powers, is able to broadcast that announcement to the entire team. And one of my favorite lines here from Beast, which he's a raging sociopath, and you know how much I hate him. He (laughs) says, I'm I'm on my way, fair maiden. I shall be there in three bounces and a swoosh, (laughs) which is pretty funny. Um, but Beast, I guess he's very gay a couple times in this issue, and that's the first time. <laughs> well, I actually thought uh Angel sounded a little gay when he was here, like Tally ho girl, like <laughs> that was pretty funny. But um, yeah, so I guess they're infiltrating is that the mutant city base. Did mm-hmm. I get that location correctly? Mm.
2: I like I like the uh the cliche. Did you see that, Mildred? A guy flying under the bridge
1: with wings, yeah. And, 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 then, and then, and then he's here like, uh, she's here, Mildred is like, I told you not to drink and drive.
3: <laughs> Herman, how many times have I told you not to drink before driving? That's
1: the that's the voice <laughs> I had in my head. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly that. Again, it was really funny and and interesting, and it, and it, it took me a second there with that to realize that the world building, which is mutants, are still very new because a, a line like that wouldn't pop up in today's comics. It's you know mutants, heroes, everything that's pretty commonplace in the MU. But yeah, so we get um, Lorna and Eric coming to Mesmero and, you know, he's accepting Eric amongst the ranks there while the X-Men are infiltrating the base and, you know, they want to stick to Cyclops' schedule. And we do get another shot of Lorna with Magneto again. And his colors are off here. Is that in continuity with previous issues? Yeah, I
0: think so. So the costume he's wearing here is the same one he's had as the robot. Uh, I'll I'll double check while we're talking, though.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, he acknowledges her as you know his daughter, and then on the next page, uh, well, on, they... on
0: page seven, there's a couple weird boxes. Lorna goes, she's thinking, why do I sense that he's unlike the others of this band? He doesn't exude the strange evil vibrations that even my newfound father transmits. Like, is that a reference to the robot? Is she is she sensing the current?
2: <laughs> I just think it's weird that they suddenly accept this total stranger as their leader.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that
2: makes no sense to
0: me at all. I, I Again, I want to blame Mesmero for just mecha- like fucking with their minds, but
2: it
1: I doesn't. Think that's that's well, the way
2: forward. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: But they call it like what? What do they call it? like the Emperor of Mutants? That that's just yeah. such a weird moniker. And it's I think it's really telling and emblematic of how the mutants are sort of perceived in this sort of version of the storytelling or this this time in the storytelling.
0: Magneto is so cast to the side in all of his pictures. He's just like a little head in the corner and all these. He's never given the central space, which is a weird thing for Magneto. He's not, often like the center of a, the center of the panels.
2: But he is a robot.
0: Right. But yeah, we'll learn that in a few more issues. But Yeah. I, I don't know if that's what the writers intended. Okay. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Dayspring, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So um, they reunite with Eric the Red and Gina's like, it's you, Cyclops. And she embraces him for a hug. Are they dating at this point? I know mm-hmm. they, oh, they are dating. They're officially dating now. Yes. Okay. So she embraces him and, you know, Iceman being all oh, hot headed goes to turn off. the. Is he trying to turn off the power or? So, so
0: Iceman left last issue. They kicked him out. And we learn here that he has gone to Lorna Dane's parents to find out the truth about her. So they've okay. now set a trap for Mesmero in the army. They put like an electric current in the ground. They want Mesmero to hit it. But Iceman returns and they're like, oh, no, Iceman. And like, he's the one that ends up getting zapped instead of Mesmero. Okay. how did
2: he know where to go
0: how, they did were already, man,
2: how did ice man know where they were they were how already did ice ice man ice. know where Laura Lorna Dane's parents lived he's only been shacking up with her for five seconds in the in in the pad isn't he hey girl come back to my pad next thing he knows next thing you know he knows where she lived, has gone and spoken to her parents I, 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 I was and this is all in the space of what? A couple of days or so? Maybe,
0: maybe they use cerebro. Maybe Gene's <laughs> telepathy is involved. I, I don't know. But they have been to this base before. So he doesn't. He doesn't okay. know where to return to the base. At least. Okay. okay. Yeah, he gets he gets caught in the trap. <laughs> See, I'm reading this for the first
2: time and, I, and I'm, I'm trying to make it all work in my head, so. No, I get
1: it,
0: it's confusing. Bear with me,
1: bear so with me. Lorna's yeah. parents, Chad, Lorna's parents, they dyed her hair brown while she was growing up because it was naturally coming out green, Correct. right? Mm-hmm. That's That's the story that we eventually get with Lorna and her. Well, parents. that's,
0: we get that in her first appearance. She has brown yeah. hair when Iceman yeah. meets her and then she goes and showers, comes out and she's like, by the way, my hair's green. And she's like, must be a mutant <laughs> then. And and Hank says, I'm just off to a
2: costume party. That's going to explain (laughs) away my costume, isn't it?
1: That's next level. I can see, like, Lorna being a fan favorite at the time of this being released because she is a really interesting character. She doesn't have a lot of personality here, but her look is incredible. Yeah, her look, it just looks so good. But, um, yeah, so Mesmero uh, then attacks them. Does he attack them? And Jean puts uh, Iceman and Beast into, like, little psychic bubbles. As she did in the Dark Phoenix movie, and Iceman and Beast flee. I think I think it's
0: members of the mutant army that are in the bubbles. It's it's all kind of muted, oh. so it's hard to tell. But Jean Jean's TK TK is green, and then yellow, and then blue in this issue, which is weird because it's normally pink.
1: Mm. Uh, uh, we also are right. The... It is members of the mutant army. I thought it was Jean like pushing them towards the window, and then they're able to like hop out. Uh, but you're there, absolutely right. There's no mistaking it's a mutant army when you there's, zoom
0: in. There's also this moment where Beast grabs Iceman and says, "Don't waste your shots now, fellows. I'll be back in a moment as soon as my friend is safe and sound. Then we can have a gay gavotte dance, <laughs> so abandoned to a tune which I shall play upon both your upon your skulls with both feet." I had to look up the word gavotte. It's like an 18th century French dance. Uh, but this is Beast's bisexuality showing up
1: loud and clear. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, my recap ends with Jean using her psychic energy as like little razors to to cut at Mesmero. So, you know, I'm I'm very happy with that scene. I think Jean, the parts of this run that I've read with you, Chad, has always sort of been undermined as the girl of the team. And here we see her full power starting to come in display. One thing I wanted to ask you, Chad... Because this came up a lot in Bendis's run is when that gene comes to the present, her psychic powers hasn't haven't really awakened. She's just telekinetic. When in this in these first fifty two issues, does Jean's psychic power sort of awaken? Is it after Xavier quote unquote dies? So when
0: you add retroactive continuity, and I'll be very quick here, we know that Jean saw her friend die when she was a child and she lived the death in her brain. So Professor X muted her telepathy. When her mutant powers activated, then it was only telekinesis. Yeah, she
1: shared that that experience with Annie.
0: Right, and and Xavier worked with her all those years. When Xavier faked his death, which is a few issues ago, there's a reading of his will and there's kind of a mention of how Xavier has passed on his telepathic powers to Jean, which is weird. (laughs) Uh, But basically, basically she's now the team telepath because Xavier is hiding in the basement pretending to be dead. Uh, So that happened then. But yeah, when Bendis takes over, we get that, we get that uh, story where the teen Jean travels to the future, learns Mm -hmm. all of her powers, dies, rebuilds her body out of spare matter and then like goes back in time and has all her memories erased. So yeah. she's had this power under the surface all the time, but we're starting to see her come into her own here. Okay. Uh, I also love that pose of her zapping the energy. It's like she's doing a ballet move. And it's, a, it's she's a, like a dancing Wanda. We're going to do a dancing Marvel girl meme. Ian, what do you think of the X-Men's costumes in this era?
2: I'm not keen. I preferred the original costumes that they had. You know, the the, the blue and yellow ones mm-hmm. where they all look the same. Those work better for me. Um, I don't mind uh, Marvel girl's costume um it's a little bit of its time but the the one that really i really don't like is the
0: angels uh in the current comics marvel girl is back in that costume Gina's oh, is in dream again oh, okay but,
1: but yeah. now she is gone from that <laughs> it's been okay. scrapped
3: okay i yeah. like
1: her i like the the blue and gold with that mask I think there's like a hot minute where she has that look, or at least maybe it's an X Men hidden years. But I like her with that elaborate mask and the 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 golden blue. Uh, Ian,
0: walk us through the end of the issue or the the first story here. How do how do things wrap up?
1: Yeah,
2: well, from then on, um, Eric the Red, also known as Cyclops, um, blasts an energy cannon. How he knows that's an energy cannon something that tripped me up, but he does it anyway. Uh, out of his fingers. And it's never mentioned how he manipulates his optic blasts through his um, bondage suit. Um, So that for me, that fell down, uh, because I I need stuff like that explained to make it sort of like sit well with me anyway. That side,
0: fantastic. The the other major thing that's not explained, and I'll I'll be really quick here, Chris Claremont later introduces an actual character named Eric the Red, who has basically the same costume. So one of the questions I get to ask Steve Orlando, which will follow this interview is, how did Cyclops know to wear the same costume this alien guy wears? And you can hear Steve Orlando's answer if you keep listening. But anyway, Uh, go ahead, Ian
2: um there's a fantastic middle panel there i love that panel that's that's really cool it's got um gene on one side mesmero on the other side and it's all psychedelic sort of like shenanigans going on that's great uh beasts having a whale of a time kicking the asses of these guys in the local gym um which appears from nowhere (laughs) um and then on the next page that it suddenly goes from sort of like um a lot of space to breathe to quite a number of panels, which I wasn't expecting. Um, and, with, and a lot of dialogue. But basically, um, Lorna's struggling to uh, follow Magneto's directive um, until Bobby suddenly says, hey, doll, let's just sort this all out. And she's quite happy to do it. That's the way it came across to me. Um, he tells her that her parents didn't die or whatever in, uh, in, the, uh, in the plane crash and that Magneto's not her dad. And suddenly that's enough to make her uh, um, put all this Brotherhood of Evil Mutant stuff aside
0: and turn tables. So so to put this in context quickly, it mentions here specifically that Lorna's parents died in a plane crash when she was an infant. They yeah. actually died when, she, when her powers activated when she was uh, a young adolescent. But that uh, memory has been blocked. So she's been raised by the Danes to believe uh, they're her parents. And now Iceman's revealing, uh, like, your real parents actually died. Magneto's not your dad. Uh, so it's it's kind of an interesting continuity flip and uh, it's never quite been filled in.
2: And she suddenly knows that Bobby is Iceman and that hasn't been revealed yet. So
1: <laughs> played with my <laughs> head slightly. Wait, um, can, you, can I see if I got the Lorna history right here? So the Danes adopted her as a baby when her original parents died. In this so, series here, we're finding out Magneto is her dad. But at the end, Iceman's like, no, it's not really your dad.
0: Magneto, when you this is a bunch of writers over years kind of tying it together. The best sense I can make of it, Magneto sought out a woman named Susanna and mm-hmm. specifically fathered a child with her because he knew it would produce a powerful mutant child, which Xavier and Moira also did, which resulted in Legion and Proteus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Lorna then was raised by her mother, Susanna, and her father, Arnold, uh, her stepfather, and those are the two that died in the plane crash. And then she was adopted by Arnold's sister and her husband. And those were the ones who raised her. That's that's, that's kind of how it all ties together. But these are like stories told in different places over a number of years.
1: We need a House of Ham like, book. Like someone discussing all of the history with Wanda, Pietro, and Lorna. Eric, everything. I'm so convinced we need something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's rushed. And yeah, this People is like... People think the r- Summers family is the most complicated. It's actually the House of M. That <laughs> is. <laughs> Sorry. Right? You Neil know, uh, Williams. That's
2: all right. So, Off Lorna goes with in a headstrong sort of, uh right, I'm going to show everyone, um, and goes to find where the action is happening. And it's um, Eric the Red and the rest of the X-Men, they're being held hostage by Mesmero's goons. And then suddenly zap, they're all taken out, and uh, Lorna's uh, become the hero, and uh, has pretty much um, put the kibosh on uh, on Mesmero. He's he's knocked out on the ground. The X-Men are, are happy that everything has been resolved and it's all over, but they're stuck in the. Uh, In the laboratory, or laboratory, as the Americans say, and uh, they have to get out. But it's 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 um it's the classic. uh, If you run out, there's somebody out there waiting to get you. But if you stay here, you're going to blow up. So it's a lovely panel of uh, of Jean Grey on on the left hand side there. I don't know if you're both looking at it. Yeah, beautiful. That's that's lovely. Beautiful face. Um. So anyway, she's getting the vibration. She knows it's all. You know, they've got to get out of there fast. So the X Men hightail it out. And boom, 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 bat even, goes the, uh, goes the explosion in the background as they just make it out by the, the skin of their teeth. And we end on the final panel in a very Scooby-Doo kind of way. Um, <laughs> when they're all going, ha, ah, look what we just did and blah, blah, blah. The only thing that really, really, really jars me on this is the size of Bobby compared to um, Lorna. Bobby's in front of Lorna. Lorna looks twice as big as him almost. He yeah, almost yeah. looks like he's in a little boy or a Thunderbird puppet or something, yeah. Uh, that, 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 that bugged me, but aside from that, that's how it ends.
0: Uh, Beast calls Lorna beautiful and Jean's like, don't forget, she's also competent. And uh, <laughs> Lorna's spawning Lorna's over Iceman, promising to take care of him. Uh, and then she ends with uh, "Right now, how about some more muscular therapy at the Frisco Tech?" <laughs> Which is my yeah. favorite line in the whole issue. <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: I, um, I do, what is a Frisco tank? I don't, I don't get that. I
0: think, I think it's just a pun on like uh, on discotheques, like where you'd go yeah. dancing. So she's just calling oh, it okay. a Frisco Tech, like get frisky at the disco, kind of a thing. Very, very okay. mm-hmm. 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 Um, I also would like to note the sound effect. Of- the sound effect on page 15 is Bat Womb, which is where Batman lived in his mother before he
1: uh, before she <laughs> gave birth. He was in the Bat Womb. Uh- <laughs> That was perfect, Chad. Chad, that was perfect. You deserve like a webby award for that. People forget
0: I'm a dad until I give you a dad joke and then you remember.
1: <laughs> that is that is a dad joke at its finest.
0: Uh what are your thoughts on this uh on this first story just kind of concluding? And Ian, I'd love to hear what art you loved most out of this uh, uh if if anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um
2: well like I say that last bit, John I love that face of Gene Grey. Um and the panel that I described earlier with the psychedelic stuff going on, that I really like. Eugene
0: liked. finally kicks Mesmero's fucking ass and he needed it. Got yeah,
2: it. yeah, it's good stuff. Um, I found it difficult to follow, if I'm being honest, storytelling wise, um, as well as the language used is of its time and very, I don't know, it, it just doesn't come across as, as realistic to me. But, you know, what I do like a lot about it is that it's always moving and it's Big and bold, and and it and something's happening all the time. Um, so many comics today, you know, it's talking heads, and you might as well be watching a TV show. Um, but uh, this, and with this, every panel's different. You know, it's up, it's down, it's round, it's about. There's a lot of power and things going on, and it holds your interest. So I really like it from that point of view.
0: We uh, we talked a lot about the 60s books, how they were just being pumped out so fast. The Marvel style, you get the plot, the artist draws it, and then they go back and add the words, right? Uh, they're very oh. word-dense, and most of these old books are a little tough to follow. There's a lot happening. Uh, what, what we're getting into now is an era where there's multi-part yeah, storylines. You, you,
2: you say that. You look at Spider-Man of the era uh, at the same time, and easy to follow, you know, it's you know, it, yeah, no, it wasn't I, the same.
0: Wasn't the same across the board. Agreed. X Men was a was kind of the cast off book, and it's going to get cancelled in another yeah. couple of years. <laughs> uh, Day Spring, any final thoughts? Having said you? that,
2: if this if this whole um, run didn't happen, we wouldn't have the X Men that we've got today. So, I mean, it's it's got its place. There's nothing wrong with it. It yeah. just from a modern standpoint, it just looks a little bit, you know, wacko. Um, but then, um, you know the it's to the same point you know you look back at the um the batman and robin 60s tv show don't you that's a little bit wacko but everybody <laughs> loves it and and it's got its own place so you know you you can't really sort of try and pick it apart from a, from a modern standpoint
0: in, in some regards uh this bring any final thoughts
1: yeah. You know what? I, I actually really liked this issue. I agree with what both of you said that there's always something happening on panel and it's sort of moving the plot along. So I think the pacing's really good. It really made me like Lorna a lot in this first appearance. And I'm trying to think why, because I agree. I mean, she's not really fleshed out and developed, but I can envision being a reader at this time and seeing her on page and she looks so majestic. The, the design is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And me being a little bit more curious about who she is. And I think that's what, you know, when I was getting into X-Men and I was collecting the 94 Fleer Ultras, that curiosity of who this character is is why I continued with the X-Men. So seeing Lorna on page here, I would be very curious about who she is and how she's going to fit on the team. And gosh, now we have two girls on the team and one's red, the other one's purple, or excuse me, green. So, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I I much like Ian, I didn't know what the fuck was happening. <laughs> I'm still curious about Muted City and why that hasn't come back in the Krakoan age. That seems like a pretty big plot point if you're thinking of like nation building. But listen, you take it for what it is and, you know, not applying that modern lens on, you know, the storytelling at the time. And I think it's a fine issue. Just turn off your brain and and enjoy it. Yeah. it's
2: entertaining entertaining and and she looks great it's a great costume design uh, yeah. and, uh, and i I think it's disappointing having seen Eric the red in the last issue if it'd been like that
1: colored like that in this issue it would it would look great i'd have thought um, and, and then save this redesign for when he comes back in the phoenix saga <laughs> because, yeah, like, in the era, a- yeah was he going through? Was he going through Cyclops's costumes? You know, like closet, and was just like, "Oh, look at these old boots. I guess I'm gonna wear them." Like it's so. But uh, you know what? That ties in. With Steve, the Steve Orlando. Ties?
0: Steve Orlando does answer that question though. So again, stick around. There, uh-huh. there, there is reasoning that the the modern writer of Eric the
1: Red gives for that, which is interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: well, but anyways, I mean nice foreshadowing with Cyclops and the ties to the Shi'ar. So, you know, I enjoyed it. Out of all the issues I've had the opportunity to read with you, Chad, I will say, I think this one's my favorite.
0: It's getting better as we
1: move I was,
2: was going to say, if, if we'd have changed it slightly, if you'd have gone one, two, three, maybe four issues ahead of this, it would have been when I was born. Uh-huh. So this, this is January 69, I was born in April 69. Sure. Sure. So I only I, I, I saw that yesterday and I thought to myself, wouldn't it have been cool if we were reviewing a comic in the month that I was born? That would be so cool. I,
1: I, I'm not going to speak for chat on this, but it looks like you may be coming back again for something. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, what I will say, and I, I, uh, Spring knows this already, two of the reasons we're doing this podcast, I wanted to have a book club feel where we're bringing different people in each time, but also most people haven't read the 60s stuff. They, they start with Claremont yeah. and move forward. So I think it's valuable to go back here, even though a lot of it is just sheer nonsense. And for those of you that think this episode was bad, wait until we do next issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, I also think this was a 20-page story that they did in 15 pages. They needed these other five pages to make this work. But I'll cover the five-page backup really quickly. We have a, we have an Arnold Drake, uh, Werner Roth, John Verporten, and Sam Rosen. Uh, we have the character, the Conquistador, who is a, a mutant guy who's uh, designing himself to look like the old conquerors like from Spain that would come to the continent. We talked about him a little last episode, so I won't go into it. Uh, he was watching the news. He saw teenage Beast being crazy on the football field. And he's been waiting for months or years to have someone with jumping powers who could help him complete his <laughs> evil plot, which is nonsense. Uh, he has kidnapped Beast's parents. He zaps Beast with a, with a blade. His power seems to be that he can channel electricity through this blade somehow. Uh, he He's going to force Beast to work for him. And Beast won't until he sees uh, his parents have been captured. Uh, what Beast has to do is jump over a high fence and steal a power plant reactor that uh, the Conquistador wants to use in a plot to obtain control of things, basically. But as soon as he returns, uh, Conquistador still refuses to uh, free Beast's parents. He's going to keep them so he can use them for as long as he wants. He just smacks Beast aside. Uh, we also get a one-page cut over to uh, Xavier at the mansion with his newly formed X-Men team, Cyclops, Angel, and Iceman. Uh, And by the way, we have not yet seen Angel's origin story. That won't come for a few more issues. Uh, Xavier also is showing an early prototype of Cerebro uh, to kind of track the beast. And that's basically what's happening here. It's a very quick five page story. Uh, focusing on Beast uh, as he kind of comes into his own and is realizing the world is dangerous for mutants is basically where it's going. Uh, Very similar to the other X-Men origin stories. Cyclops had the Jack of Diamonds, Iceman was attacked by the Lynch mob, and now we see uh, Beast in the same space. Uh, It's going to happen for the Angel in a few issues too. Uh, Any thoughts on this final five page backup uh, that, that you enjoyed or didn't enjoy?
2: I like the fact that they're all wearing the, uh, the blue and yellow costumes. Mm-hmm. That was... <laughs> and uh, that's when I stopped reading the original X-Men was when they changed costumes. Sure. Um, so I have read some of the 60s stuff, but not this particular period. Um, but yeah, I like the Beast. I can't help it. I do like the Beast. And, uh, How, do and Ian? Just...
1: How do we mute Ian here? <laughs> <laughs> Because I love that he gets slapped here. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, but, yeah, I, I hate this
0: villain. I hate this conquistador guy. He's just so fucking stupid. Yeah, I hate
2: I hate him. He's, he's useless. He's lame. Um but yeah, it is what it is, isn't it? And uh I do um,
0: uh, I do want to look at the final page where we get the sound effects Whoosh, woosh, womp, co womp, and fabwoosh. I'm always fascinated by the sound effects they choose. <laughs>
1: uh Spring, did you have any thoughts on the beast backstory here no you know we covered it when we did a deep dive into beast and you know i sort of accept this as part of his history and it fleshes him out a little bit more especially for that point point. and you know i'm not the biggest fan of beast but you know the story is fine and sidebar ian your cover for what was it x-men unlimited with, oh, I'm, beast not with I'm not
2: that i fun doing that
1: I love, love Beast against cover.
2: regular Beast, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah
1: I, I love yeah. that cover so much. I mean, your iteration of Beast, I am a fan of. So Thank
2: you. That's very kind. <laughs> now, I, I I've always liked the Beast. He's got uh, you know, I've got a soft spot for the Beast.
1: Did you, uh, did you, when you were with us, did you say he was your favourite character and I I lectured you on that? I forget.
2: Um, he. <laughs> no, he's not my favourite character, but um, I, I have got a bit of a soft spot for him. Um, I always liked him from the original X-Men. Um, I liked most of them, but if I was going to be anyone in the original X-Men, it would be Beast or Cyclops, probably. Gotcha. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I always... I, I liked the fact that he was... So smart, and yet relied on his physical strength a lot, you know, and, and his, his his mutant abilities. Um, but his brain always got him out of trouble um, when he did get into a soft, into a, a tough tough spot. Um, until he yeah, turned into I,
0: until he turned into the evil monster that we know and love today.
2: <laughs> yeah, I haven't read many of those, so I can't comment. But yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah um
0: as we uh, as we are wrapping up let me just state once again day spring i have such mad respect for you i'm so glad to have you as a friend and ian it is a an esteemed honor for me as an adult but especially for teenage me to go back and, uh, and meet one of my all-time favorite artists uh, thank you thank you for the gift of this time today uh as we're wrapping up uh please tell people where they can find you online if they'd like to follow your work and recognizing this episode is scheduled to come out on august 14th is there anything coming up that we can look forward to, uh, that you're able to plug and or announce con appearances, work, etc. Uh, Spring, you want to go first?
1: Yeah, yeah. But but before I begin to chat, I just want to say your podcast, the, the space you've created is next level. Power of X-Men, when I envisioned it was exactly what you do. And you do such a great job doing this communal feel, uniting people and making sure everyone's at the table. So thank you again for having us on because I think the work you do is Extraordinary,
0: you're a sweetheart, but
1: for, for Power of X Men, let's see. We're covering Judgment Day on the podcast with Michelle, Scott, and Namor Cosplay. We have a couple guests coming down the line, and we are going to be at Flame Con, I believe, in August, right around when this airs. So, check out our coverage for Flame Con. Uh, Ian, same what, questions. What was Flame Con? Oh, it's a local LGBTQIA plus con here and wow. in Southern Times Square. And I I think friend of all of us, right. Cerebrocast, is going to be there with Demanda Martini. Who we love. And she has class who we love so much. So, yeah, I think it, it's a fun, you know, smaller convention, but it brings so many people together and is so impassionate. And it's right there
3: in Times Square, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, and Homeless Superior Podcast
1: is going to be there as well. Mm, We're totally. fans of
3: uh, what am I up to? Um, Where can people find, me, find you
1: again?
2: I'm on Facebook. Um, I've got a Facebook page. Uh, currently, I think there's a picture of Marine Man up there. So hmm. if you see my picture of Marine Man, which I created, um, uh, <laughs> that's the one to go for. Because I think there are a couple of uh, Ian Churchill Facebook pages that I did have, but forgot the password to, so I can't get into anymore. So If you do want to find me, that's (laughs) the the one to look at. Um, What else am I up to? I've been doing a lot of stuff for Richard Starkings lately, um, Elephant Men uh, covers and what have you. Um, I've just done an Action Comics annual. Hold on. Just bear with me. I think I've got... Well... Did the cover to Action Comics, so that was me. I, I did that one.
0: Beautiful. Um, is that a is that Philip Kennedy Johnson's uh, writing? It's uh, Johnson. Yeah, Johnson. Yeah, yeah. That's that's We we, beat, we, just Phillip, we just had Philip. We just had Philip on the podcast a couple episodes ago. We got to talk about his Superman work. He's he's amazing. Oh,
2: okay. So that's the um, that's the cover, and then I did another the whole annual. It was, it was an annual. It was me and um, Dale Eaglesham. Oh sure. That's um, so. That's the uh, cover. That's uh, Steve Root cover, and then
0: that's... and I and I literally just had Steve Root on the podcast like two episodes ago.
2: <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I have to check that out. In that case, that's that's me. That's I did that. That's the uh, Superman. That's the splash page. So I'm doing the Superman pages on that, um, and then uh... <clears throat> beautiful,
0: was... beautiful
2: um so there's that uh that's it at the moment i think i'm not not you know i'm 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 doing stuff outside of comics which uh um is taking up some of my time so at the moment that's pretty much all the stuff you can see from me unfortunately stuff stuff from rick for richard i've i've, I've been making uh um some headway on i i really enjoy working on the elephant elephant man stuff for, for rich So. Uh and I'm There's, not doing any not doing any show. Nothing,
0: there is nothing like Elephant Man. It's uh it's such no, a it's fantastic. It's yeah.
2: fantastic. I just uh I love drawing the characters, always have done and since uh he invited me to be part of it. So
0: well, I'm going to do my outro here really quickly, but uh, everybody who's listening, please stay tuned because there's an incredible conversation with Steve Orlando immediately following this, uh, which is more about the modern books and the character Eric De Red, and goes all over X-Men history. And it's an absolute joy. So stick around. But you can find Gray Malkin Lane on Instagram under Gray Malkin underscore Lane or on Twitter under Gray Malkin PP like podcast. We are actively using our Patreon now. I have an episode coming out with character-focused stuff every week. Uh, uh, Sarah Century and I are just putting out an episode about uh, Vera Cantor, who's my all-time favorite ex-supporting character, uh, which is so much fun. Uh, Right around the time we released this, uh, Seth Martell and I are doing an episode on Fred Duncan on Patreon as well. So check those out. Uh, It's a lot of fun. Uh, And uh, we've got our t-shirt shop up now. So check us out on TeePublic. We've got some really good stuff uh, coming up. Uh, and uh, and just released, so uh, watch out for that. Our next episode is going to be uh, the next issue, X Men Fifty Three, which features a nonsense story about Blastar, the uh, the yeah, Fantastic Four villain. Uh, we're featuring the writer Clay McLeod Chapman. Uh, right after that, X-Men 54, we've got Elliot R. Brown, who did all the tech designs on the original Marvel handbooks uh, uh, coming on to join us. It's going to be a very handbook-focused uh, episode, and I'm super thrilled as a former handbook writer. Uh, it's, I'm coming full circle getting to uh, to interview someone that I admire a lot. Uh, so Ian, uh, Spring, thank you both so much for being here today. Uh, this has been wonderful. Um, stick around and uh, listen to uh, Steve Orlando right after this. Hey, I am thrilled to be joined by uh, by my friend Steve Orlando today. Hi, Steve. How are you?
3: I'm good. Uh, I'm excited to talk about uh, some some bird aliens.
0: So this uh, this this interview or this conversation is going to be uh, along with the episode that I'm recording tomorrow, which is with Ian Churchill uh, regarding X-Men number fifty two. In that issue, we're at the end of the kind of the Jim Steranko art era. Uh, we have Lorna Dane and Mesmero and the robot of Magneto that have all been introduced. Mesmero has established a big base full of mutants out in the desert. The X-Men are overwhelmed and they flee because Lorna Dane feels beholden to Magneto because she's learned that uh, he is her father. She says, I have to perform my filial duty, something like that. She, I have no choice but to be evil, uh, but we're going to learn shortly. He's, they don't think he's actually her dad. And so she sides with the X-Men and blah, blah, blah. Cyclops has a brilliant plan. He runs back to the base after they've been gone for a few days and uh, he puts on a red bondage costume and calls himself Eric the Red, who he's naming himself after uh, an infamous Viking. Uh, and uh, we see in this issue his his hijinks, <laughs> proving himself as Mesmero and Magneto's right hand man before revealing he's Cyclops and saving the day. Uh, Years later, Claremont in X-Men 97 uh, uh, re-brings Eric the Red back in, but this is actually a Shi'ar alien, so we're now in 1976, the guy's name is Davin Shikari, or Davin Shikari, Uh, he looks the same as Cyclops, so I'm not quite sure where Cyclops got the inspiration. Uh, But Eric the Red is now back and he's a character that's been used on and off in the comics over the years with kind of sporadic appearances. So, Steve, my very basic question to you is who the fuck is Eric the Red? (laughs) Uh,
3: Well, the good thing is um, that if you're reading Marauders right now, which is probably why you had me on, like, Eric is is Devon Shikari. Uh, That's his, she, our name. Uh, But as we've revealed in Marauders, uh, in some ways, Eric the Red is his real name. Uh, you know, we, he, he's been revealed to be connected to, for lack of a better term, uh, though it's not exactly that, the sort of the, the Shi'ar Templar Knights uh, that have been sort of curating their history and making sure the Shi'ar looks strong ever since way back billions of years ago when they themselves were space Vikings. Um, and so it's, it, it's, it's a nice coincidence. It's almost like we planned it that he's named after a Viking um and as we've revealed he's been on earth as a sleeper agent monitoring mutant progress for his uh his secret society the kin crimson uh for 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 many many thousands if not millions of years uh and and along with that hey you you wonder where uh the 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 viking eric the red got that name and those ideas from right uh so he's been sneaking around and even the times that he's battled the x-men supposedly for the shiar have basically just been a feint. They've been him testing the mutants, they've been him seeing sort of where mutants are, all to make sure that they don't ever get too close to this big secret, uh, one of many that his society has been holding. So while he uh, has been playing a sort of fanatic uh, for uh, the uh, Lilandra's Lalandra's late brother to Ken, um, he, actually has been a whole different type of fanatic uh, and one that has been connected to this to this group of people that have been ensuring that essentially the Shi'ar always look good and look as strong as possible since long before humans even existed. Um, so we've seen him working missions as a, as a Shi'ar secret agent, sort of space secret agent. Uh, again, as you said, since the 70s, uh, sort of ill-defined powers, but a look. He's kind of just been a cool costume and a character that kind of shows up and gets his ass kicked, to be frank. Um, but now we know there's a reason for that. Uh, and 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 I'm very excited to to keep telling that story. So Eric the
0: Red has mostly, the, the main character, not the Cyclops or Magneto in disguise versions of him, but the Eric the Red, the character, uh, has mostly been written by Claremont. We see him as a sleeper agent on Earth. He's got this base with a bunch of people who work for him. Uh, I think it's canon that he he kind of views his time on Earth as an exile. He does a bunch of crazy shit. He's the guy that brought Baby Magneto back to adult Magnetohood, uh, as well as uh. the rest of the Brotherhood. He restored them back to their adult selves after Alpha, the ultimate mutant, changed them into babies. Uh, and then he's-
3: and I love Baby Magneto, by the way. Still have not found a way to get Alpha into a comic, but don't think. It's not on my list. I would love
0: to see Alpha back. Well, well uh, he was in a uh, he was in Mark Grunwald's Quasar. He got captured by the Stranger for a minute. I think that's the last time we saw him.
3: I've read him because he's kind of maybe in love with the Futurist, who's also who's also captured there. Oh uh, yes, yes, I love. And, the then they, too. and then they and then Alpha and the Futurist go off to explore creation together. It's very romantic, or at least as romantic as things could be in Quasar in the 1990s.
0: I have a I have a huge respect for people whose brains work like mine, where you just have this endless filing cabinet of obscure Marvel and DC random facts of characters that nobody thinks about.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, the thing I I, I was it's 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 growing and it's aggregating at Marvel. I was at DC for a long time and as an adult reader dc was sort of where i lived but then as a kid i was i was a marvel person first but we're talking really really young the first books i bought were marvel books from like a flea market in the 80s um and you know in a similar way to dc where i learned those characters from trading cards uh when i was getting random issues of like west coast avengers and things like that i didn't really know who quote unquote mattered and didn't right because there was no internet we didn't have a comic store in my town. So to me, like the Swordsman was just as cool as Silver Centurion, Iron Man, you know, because they were both on the West Coast Avengers, so they must be equally popular. Silly me, although I do really like Swordsman. And <laughs> uh, and and I and so I think even though I came at the two the two big sort of books of lore in different ways, I also love to collect both DC Who's Who and the Marvel handbooks. Uh, and again, it's not like there's a popularity ranking in those, so I'm like, oh, you know, the, the controller, he must be a big deal. Um, And I think that's where that came from, because all that stuff was in, I mean, they were, those were, that was not even back issue bins, because that implies a comic store. I was like picking up comics that were sold next to like, you know, porcelain elephants that you pour milk and shit out of uh, uh, in Syracuse. So uh, there really was no context. And if I've become a deep lore person, that's probably the reason, because, hey. It all mattered to me from the start.
0: Uh, Mark Grenwald remains my my first and uh, and greatest Marvel hero. Although I have a lot of them along the way, but yeah, those handbooks. I, again, I later wrote on the handbooks, so I, it was it was an honor to uh, to work on the projects that brought me so much joy when I was a kid. So, uh, Shikari, we're not going to go into a ton of detail on this character. We'll just note uh, Claremont used him as a villain. He's clearly taken from the Cyclops guy. Claremont loves himself a bondage costume. <laughs> this guy's wearing like. Tight red leather. I, I I could see him at Folsom uh, doing some uh, doing some crazy shit to some people in an alley somewhere. But uh, but the character was later picked up by Fabian Nicieza, who brought him into the Captain Marvel title for a while. And then he has ties to uh, to Adam X the Extreme, uh, who is the third or, or fourth Summers brother, depending on how you look at continuity. Uh, we also see him in uh, in Ed Brubaker's Deadly Genesis series. But he hasn't been around for a while. He's not a character often used. Uh, in modern continuity, there's been a lot more Shi'ar stuff. Uh, we've seen the fraternity of raptors stuff, which you brought into your lore, into the books, as a secret society of people manipulating Shi'ar politics. There's uh, Ed Brubaker's kind of classic Shi'ar run, where uh, where Ken comes back, lalandra has been killed. Uh, all these crazy stuff is going on and the politics of it all. It's very Games of thrones in space. <laughs> and now you're revealing in the Marauders uh, this, this kind of epic version of the Shi'ar history going back into the Kin Crimson stuff. Where did you get the idea to use this story and these characters in these ways?
3: I mean, one of them is a matter of context, right? Like we live on earth, we're human. So we tend to think we're important, you know, because we're alive. And at the same time, like, I think that it is sort of a fault of human thinking that it seems as though many, when we go into space and comics and science fiction in general, not all the time, of course, but often it feels like we assume that these other planets and cultures are kind of on the same timetable as we are, and there's no reason they that they would be. You know, there's no necessary. You know, the, our Big Bang and our solar system uh, or universe rather doesn't necessarily mean that it was the same in other universes. And even if it isn't the same universe, I mean, these are made of planets. We don't know that they all. Uh, became capable of sustaining life at the same time. If They even have one planet, because as we've seen, uh, the Shi'ar of two billion years ago uh, were basically space nomads. Uh, they probably had a home world, uh, but they were not what they are today. Uh, and that all comes to me from uh, just sort of wanting to, A, again, sort of cast a more thoughtful light on science fiction in general, but also to sort of examine empires. You know, like they, they I mean, obviously Deken was, uh, uh, unstable, but in general they're looked at as allies to mutant kind um, and seemingly uh, re- benevolent overall uh, as far as empires go. But you don't get to be an empire without a- without having some skeletons in the closet.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh,
3: and, and and no one starts out there. So I t- I took where I took the, the the nomadic prehistoric Shiar idea and based it sort of on uh, Russian lore because I studied that in college, you know and that involves a time where they were those folks were i mean over a thousand years ago um sort of more nomadic sort of more what we would call uh i mean i hesitate to say barbarians they weren't barbarians but they weren't organized they were decentralized sure uh, and and they got conquered by the vikings or in their version asked the vikings to come and rule them which is adorable. Uh, and that's sort of how the first Russian dynasty was established, the Rurikid dynasty in the late 900s. Uh, and of course now, like the, the, you know, the those Vikings were intermingling with, with uh, Slavic folks and they, again, became the Russian dynasty that ended with Ivan the Terrible. Um, one of the two major Russian dynasties uh, came from Viking blood. So I wanted to sort of put a little bit of that Uh, into the Shi'ar's history, but on a scale so wide that there was a lot of room to explore if anyone else wanted to Of sort of, we started here and broadly we are now here. Um, That was important to me, but you know, it's it's a couple billion years, so there's plenty of time for uh, many other things to happen. Uh, But it all just comes, you know, again, from this idea. I I, I like fleshing out concepts and, and it just seemed a little too easy to me that we never really saw the Shi'ar climb. You know, we know that they look down upon folks like Deathbird that um are uh, I forget what she officially is called, but you know, genetically regressive. Cal- uh, oh, oh, excuse me. I'm thinking of uh, her real name. Oh, I know her name, yeah, but I just mean like they they look down on her for being more bird like, right? So sure. like, this is all to me an opportunity to say like where do these prejudices come from. Uh, and you know, now here we are and we know a little bit, but the nice thing is is that there's plenty more to explore, whether it's me or for other people, you've seen Al touch a little bit on their politics and stuff as well. in X-Men red, which is related to the stuff we're doing in Marauders.
0: Yeah. And the, uh, you know, this is very much in some ways, the emperor wears no clothes, uh, kind of storyline in that the Shi'ar paint themselves a particular way, but they're also world conquerors. They use genetic material from other races. They've got the Imperial guard who they, uh, are constantly putting through things when one member dies another takes their place. So we've seen these kind of hints of of the holes in the empire for a long time, but this is a unique time in their politics uh now that Xandra has been in charge. Lelandra <clears throat> was Lilandra was uh assassinated by the Fraternity of Raptors. And now we have uh the the clone child <laughs> of Lelandra and Professor X ruling the empire and uh this this kin crimson that you're writing about working Endlessly to protect the secrets of the empire, which, in large part, based on the last issue of Marauders, are uh, we are not flawless. We are not without sin. Uh, we have to keep these things secret so that we can keep the facade of the throne uh, uh, as pure and holy. Almost tell me something yeah, about it. It's
3: almost that. like a culture that is obsessed with exceptionalism uh, might not want to, you know, might want to rewrite their own history if they could, given the chance. And I don't really know what that reflects in the real world right now uh it's better but, to
0: kill the empress than it is to have our secrets revealed i mean they they, they killed xandra right in front of us yeah
3: i mean yeah i am not like it's it's a superhero comic like it is not my most subtle work to me like it, it, it i mean but these are also motivations that you see in the real world you see it right now with certain states outlawing uh, basically the teaching about slavery not being able to call it slavery uh needless to say other scandals that we've had in our in our own relatively short history you see it in things like it being against the law to really talk about the rape of nan king which is a terrible thing that many people don't uh know happened um you know it's not like it's not like folks in the uk are excited to talk about uh partition in india yeah i could go on and on uh and so history is
0: history is written by the winners of the war yeah
3: yeah, and so what we're, do- I mean, we're doing our superhero version of that, but at the same time, Zandra is not just Chiara. And so you see that she is, uh, though she wavers, uh, her the, the, her relationship uh, with, with mutant kind, and especially people like Storm and Captain Pride, eventually push her to say, like, no, the only way forward is warts and all, uh, which I think is, is, is the way, you know, it should go in the real world. You know, when you're teaching a kid, Uh, that if they fuck up and do something wrong, you take responsibility for it. Well, there's no reason that shouldn't apply to nations and things like that, too. So I I see no reason in not acknowledging the past. There's no real way to move forward. Um, And so, yeah, we want to sort of reflect that. But at the same time, we're not looking to be pedantic. It it is still a things blow up superhero story. But just with that little touch of relevance uh, that we hope comes through.
0: Uh, I really appreciate how streamlined the X-Books are right now, and it requires a lot of following, but you mentioned X-Men Red with the setup with the Shi'ar stuff that happened with Xandra. Before that, they were in the New Mutants book. Uh, and then Teeny Howard's Secret X-Men sets up Xandra and Deathbird being uh, pulled apart. Uh, and now you've got this, this story being picked up here. I know you're in the middle of it, and I know there's a lot to come, but you have launched this very, very epic story that's very broad-based with a lot of characters that are unfamiliar, uh, such as you know, Tempo and Somnus. Uh, it's it's fun. It's a really fun read. I love uh, Eleonora Carlini's art style. Uh, I'm really excited to see what you have coming up, uh, which I'll ask you if you want to pitch uh, anything to us in a minute. When yeah. it comes to the, when it comes to the King Crimson, though, I just wanted to compliment you on how how aware you are of the Shiar history, which is not easy to keep track of. I'm so <laughs> shocked. I'm so shocked by the use of your character Delphos. Who there are so many well known. Uh, Imperial Guard members, and then you're using uh, Fang or the Lupac uh, as 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 a, a source for this engine at the same time. But Delphos was a throwaway kind of Oracle character from the Inhuman series of all places, and to make her part mm-hmm. of the Kin Crimson was really shocking. Uh, tell me a little bit about the the use of these characters.
3: Well, you're actually kind of—I mean, like I—I'm I, I, I'm easily the dumbest person in the X Men office, uh, but I will say that you're kind of you know, you're kind of showing why someone like Jeff was a good fit, right? Like, I mean, in, I will say the behind the scenes answer is, you know, when you're going to reveal someone is a potentially, uh, uh, coup leading, uh, usurper and, and, and crazy CR nationalist sleeper agent, it's actually easier to pull that off as you might imagine with a character that is a less well known than if I was like gladiator pulls his face off like in scooby doo and suddenly has hated you know uh Zondra the whole time uh or, or, Oracle
0: to- Oracle seemed like a like a logical fit for me in some ways but, well, but Oracle just kind
3: of flirted with that shit in the uh in, in Hickman's issue that Brett Booth drew I thought so I didn't want to like it was almost too easy right like yeah yeah like, yeah oh. uh but no that was kind of the thing like it's never the one you expect and Delphos has been right there but also to be clear like it's not just about me taking the easy way out uh it is her powers were a good fit for that right like she's crushing uh her preconceptions um and uh that that does sort of slide into and help sort of lend credence to why she would be one of the leaders of this group because she can see potential things happening before it happens um and of course she can also lie about things she sees to manipulate other people in the King Crimson, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. And that's the thing that, that Kieran's been playing with, with Destiny too, like, which I think is really nice. Like, the fact is like, characters can lie, you know? Like, uh, and, and when someone is prescient, I think that that's a pretty uh, powerful tool. Uh, how can you really prove that, you know, what they're saying is gonna happen? It's kind of a catch 22, right? Like Delpho shows up, people like her, but we'll talk about Delpho's show up. They say, well, this is gonna happen uh, unless we do X. But X is what she really wants. Uh, and, you know, conveniently, if they do X, the thing that she said that was going to happen that was bad never happens because that's how prescience works. So it, it just seemed really like a good fit for someone who's a manipulator, for someone who, uh you know, is is a sleeper agent uh, and could successfully sort of be one of the soft leaders of this group for a long time. But at the same time, we've seen in issue three and four, which is out like she oversteps and gets spanked by Zandra. And I'm really happy with that, too, because I think how can you not be? Uh, Albeit young, but strong-willed and 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 at least laterally thinking and and uh, wise leader, or on the road to wise when your parents or at least your genetic donors are Lilandra and and Charles, you know. So, but that that's Delphos, um, Fang. I mean, I just. <laughs> i i do just in, in, a, in a basic way like i i i find opportunities and i feel like they can't be passed up right like i for, i think it was in wolverines where you find out that like loop really are the most unkillable mm-hmm. uh because they have their little invisible gland uh and that is just some classic comics absurdity uh of, of a style that i like um and uh, yeah we got to take advantage of it and make it tragic right like so now because the king crimson is brutal they have this person whose mind, just like his body, can handle any type of stress. But because of that, they're basically slaughtering him every hundred years or whatever, once they want to do an upload uh, and and saving him in just his little gland, you know? So we should really be thanking the writer of Wolverines who I have completely forgotten at this moment, so apologies, (laughs) uh, but I'm attempting to credit. And uh, and and I think that, again, there's, there's opportunities there. And on a basic level, I just think Fang has always been cool. I mean, the original brown and tan Wolverine costume came from that. Um, and you'll see a little bit about that in issue five as well. Wolverine stole that costume off of a Fang and it presumably didn't kill him because he didn't know about the invisible gland that wasn't canon then, but secretly was canon because it was revealed 20 years later, 30 years later. Um, so, so I, uh,
0: <laughs> I, I, maintain a lot of profiles on the Marvel Universe appendix, which covers obscure characters. And one of my profiles that I maintain is Fang. So I just pulled it up. Fang, uh, Fang was covered in Wolverines by, uh, and, and every issue would change writers. So it was Charles Soule and, uh, Ray Fox going back and forth. They're the ones that told this crazy
3: oh, thing. Oh, well, I love Charles and Ray. And in addition to that, Charles is an amazing lawyer in his side gig and Ray is an amazing painter. So there you go. Fantastic. Uh, what can you uh, and, and I just
0: I want to throw a shout out, although it's completely unrelated. Tempo was in the very first Marvel comic I ever picked up. I have always loved her, even though she's so underutilized. I am adoring what you're doing with her in the books. Uh, and I'm really excited to see what comes up. I think I think um, I think your run the way I'm perceiving your run on Marauders is it's one of those where I'm going to have to wait until it's all finished and then go back to the beginning to look at everything you seeded along the way. And it's going to be a, a wonderful long form read. Uh, I hope so (laughs) I'm I'm really I'm really excited about it Uh, what can you plug about what is coming up in Marauders recognizing this this episode comes out in uh, in mid-August
3: well and it's July now right so uh, well the AXE
0: stuff coming up I know
3: yes yes so so that I think is September you know the thing is is like Unfortunately with the with the supply chain the way it is we have like we can hope the things come out when we expect but uh you never know you know like um you know there are unfortunately I mean 5 was supposed to come out closer to the gala at least and now that is not the case which is okay cuz we don't really go to the gala it happens on a data page um but it still would be nice you know for it to have been out around then sure, so, so that sure. is, I'll say they're with us is my answer so we uh, should
0: stick or, with uh, what's been revealed in the solicits perhaps it's <laughs> your uh, time uh, travel and so, the, the Eternals judgment.
3: Uh, yeah. So, well, the nice thing is five is the ending of the of this first arc, uh, which does get us to a place uh, where we can take a little minute and do our judgment day tie-in issue. Uh, five does go back. I mean, again, like we wanted to find a way to use the, 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 the quote unquote real uh, nemesis slash Holocaust, uh, which again, I think is a funny thing. We're trying to avoid, I mean, it was the 90s that name is not ideal. But then when uh, Jordan and I were looking into it, we found out that his first name is Nemesis. We thought there was his other code name or something, but we realized it's just his name. Like his name <laughs> is like Nemesis Sabanur. It could have been Brian, you know, but like <laughs> name Nemesis, so it was really convenient. Um, but we wanted to use the original version uh, and, and you know, that guy's dead. So we had to come up with a little bit of like, a, both a very uh, ticking clock time travel heist which is what we have in five, but that also lets us go back and and get into sort of the, what I, the, the I guess, around the Fatal Attractions era, like Acolytes on, on Avalon, uh, and of course, like the newly minted Nemesis, fresh from Age of Apocalypse, just a time that was so foundational and characters that were so foundational for the X-Men. Uh, and yeah, now we can see him get in a massive fight with Exodus, uh, with Cassandra Nova and a surprise guest star involved, that you might folks might have predicted or not uh, depending on how they've been reading and it's just a great cross time caper issue before we slip back for judgment day which i've already said i mean i'm happy to say here is an allusion to what i think is another iconic uh, ex-office issue the peter david therapy issue uh with doc samson um our therapist is not doc samson you'll see who that is, but it is a nice moment to sit down and Uh, really spend some time with each of these members of the Marauders because we have been like, go, 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 since it started. And part of that is the realities of, again, we had to hit certain points uh, to line up with other books. Um, And part of that is, you know, that we just wanted it to be a frenetic sort of uh, action book. But it is nice now that we'll be using Six to really let you know how all these things are affecting these characters. And you will find out, I mean, I'm very, we've already hinted at what Tempo's sort of like secret drive is with how she views time. A lot of people seem to like the data page where she explains the difference between her, a chronokinetic, and Bishop, a time traveler. Brilliant. Like, I wrote that thing and it's like 500 fucking words long. And then I was like, I could have just said that Bishop is on a boat in the river and tempo changes the river. And that's like, it could have been four sentences, but instead it was much more. Um, but so, you know, a little bit more, but uh, there's already been things hinted at in there that will play out in six. And then hopefully, going well, five and six, and hopefully going forward. Um, and you'll see little things like that uh, for every character on the team, at least the majority of them. Uh, you know, you'll see a little bit more about where Psylocke is at. Um, you know, everybody uh, faces a pretty personal challenge in Judgment Day um, because of what I just said about the supply chain and everything. I, I, I really have no concept if the world will know what that challenge is by the time this interview comes out. But suffice to say, uh, what the judgment in judgment day, I don't think it's a spoiler. It's called judgment day uh, is, is one that is extremely personal and extremely jarring. And that's, you know, anytime an entire population is traumatized, it's a good time for some introspection. So that's, what's coming in six. And I'm excited to really dig in and do some character work. I'm excited for pride and Cassandra to make fun of Fabian Cortez. Cause it's like my favorite <laughs> pastime. Um, and, you know, At the same time, uh, there's just like, you know, (laughs) it is nice to do what I think that comics should do the best, which is, you know, give love to the past, but push things forward. So yes, we're doing a therapy issue, but it is not just them sitting there, like with Doc Samson. We're doing our, uh, hopefully Marvel's first hyperbaric time therapy issue uh, for DBZ fans. Like, yes, I'm just taking the hyperbaric time chamber and making it a therapy phrase. Uh, but I'm very excited for folks to see that. And then with seven, uh, Eleonora's is back and, uh, we are, man, well, uh, if, if you thought we were going to actually go two billion years in the past, like then folks, you don't know me at all. So, so a lot of stuff is happening in seven. Um, but we'll get there, you know, we'll get there. And by then there will have been at least two different ninth marauders. So I guess that's another tease.
0: That is wonderful. So as we center in the 60s book, let me ask you one last question. Uh, Cyclops gets the idea to dress as Eric the Red to go take down Mesmero and the robot Magneto. Where did he get the inspiration for this costume that is clearly already being worn by Davin Davin Shikari, although we don't know who that guy is yet. Where did Cyclops get the idea to dress as
3: Eric the Red? It's a good question, huh? But is it the sixties? That's the real question, because everything is on a sliding time scale. So well,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Which sixties being the publication date, not the not the actual time events.
3: So, you know, like with that in mind, we just have to pick what, you know, you know, what from <laughs> I mean, realistically seven years ago could have influenced him. <laughs> uh, no, I think uh yeah, there's a joke answer. Uh, you know, I feel like Cyclops and uh, anybody who's possessed by malice clearly have the same tailor. Um,
0: (laughs) Susan Storm's like four boob window comes to
3: mind. (laughs) But realistically, based on uh, his actions in New X-Men, I feel like we all know that Cyclops always has had a little bit of secret kink. So I don't really think that that needs an explanation. I feel like it's all right there on the page.
0: He's like, I need horns, I need red leather, and I need to shoot my
3: optic mass blast out of my fingers. <laughs> I mean, it all tracks. I mean, you said Folsom, but let's yeah. I mean, there's there's plenty of places. There's plenty of places that he could be sneaking down from Westchester uh, to wear that costume at. And for you know, for all we know, he had one one or two times and brought Jean or Emma along. Probably more in the Emma for, period. Yeah, being, yeah. I mean,
0: Emma, Emma. Maybe he went to some Hellfire Club parties, and we just didn't know.
3: I mean, there's a history of X-Men characters making other X-Men characters dress up as other X-Men characters. (laughs) It's not just Scott and Emma. I'm pretty sure Fabian made uh, a sex worker dress up in a Magneto outfit one time. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm just we're just honoring tradition with this. That's what I'm saying.
0: Fantastic. Steve, I am a huge fan of yours. What an honor to sit down and talk with you for a while. Uh, You've kind of already plugged stuff. I know you've got a lot of other things coming out, there. You're doing X-Men Green. You're doing 2099, which should be wrapping up soon. Uh, Is there anything else you'd like to plug while we're here?
3: Well, I will say, if you haven't been reading X-Men Green, it's on Marvel Unlimited. uh... It's wonderful. And it, it, it does it does matter, you know, like we just saw some things today. I, I know it's easy to look at digital first and be like, oh, how does this fit in? Do I really need to read this? Well, first of all, you don't ever, no one has to read anything, of course. Uh, but I will say that we've been making an, uh, an effort to not only give love to the, the wild ass story that Jerry started and that Carla blew up into something even more spectacular, uh, but also sort of show how Nature Girl and her team's actions are gonna sort of Fit in at least to what's going on with Orcus, what's going on in Krakoa. You know, we had a revelation today, uh, which I guess because today is not really today due to when this is coming out. I can. This will be a couple that, weeks out. Yeah, yeah. We did reveal another petal uh, uh, on the Orcus flower, and it's their it's their it's their propaganda wing. We've revealed that it's uh, headed up by Judas Traveler. Uh, who's also from, yes, from the 90s, for people busting my chops, especially Tom King, but more to the point, it's about a mutant who's played at being a god and paid for it. So now, you know, he's, he's an orchestra for a reason. He's seen that gone awry in his own life, so nothing terrifies him more than seeing Krakoa and mutant kind of general declaring themselves Earth's new gods, uh, which happened, of course, in House of X. And, uh, you know, he, he thinks he's doing what has to be done from experience. Uh, and when we sat down and talked about that pedal, it was like, this is this is perfect. And his name is Judas. It's right in the name. Um, <laughs> and you know, like his powers of, I mean, he's always kind of been like a smoke and mirrors guy. From the start, he was acting as though he was obviously more powerful than he really was, you know making himself out to be a God, making him using his illusion powers. And so it just felt right to be the him, have him be the head of uh, Orcus's propaganda wing. And at the same time, like people like, Nature Girl are making it real easy when they go on the news after murdering a bunch of people and saying they're the X-Men. yeah. yeah. it is, it it will all, of course, nothing is mandatory, nothing is compulsory, but if if folks have been wondering how it fits in, we're slowly getting there. Uh, And at the same time, like for folks who do like lesser known X-Men characters, Unlimited is a place to look, there's less risk. So yeah, you'll see Nature Girl, uh, you know, working with the Armageddon man, uh, who's who's showed up again, and will have shown up multiple times by the time this interview comes out. You'll see her with Sauron. You saw Judas Traveler, and uh, there's there's a lot more coming. And that's because again, like we have an opportunity here with these uh, shorter issues to shine a spotlight on folks that need love. Maybe there's not a stated role for them in one of the big books, but that's why we're here. Uh, there's kind of no rules uh, with with where we can go and what we can do. So I think that's really exciting, and I really have been having a blast on it. Because, uh, I mean, it's going to, and I'll tell you, it's going to be heart-wrenching. The stuff coming up with Hearst is, Curse is going to be, man, Hearst, there should be a character. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, The stuff coming up with Curse uh, is, uh, is, is going to be heart-wrenching. And I say coming up because I don't know if it will be out yet. Um, because again, what is time? Uh, but for folks who have maybe thought that Nature Girl has gone wildly over the line, uh, from where she was, I'll say is, uh, we noticed, and we're going to break some hearts, uh, in the next couple of weeks.
0: I adore that so much. Hey, Steve, where can people find you online if they'd like to
3: watch or follow what you're doing? You should find me at, uh, at, at the Steve Orlando on Twitter, uh, and at the Steve Orlando on Instagram. Um, my Facebook is mostly for personal. So I, I urge folks to find me on Twitter, Instagram. I'm very, uh, I'm very reachable. Just ask the host of this show. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm happy to talk there, but, um, that is where you'll see me talking about stuff, teasing stuff. Twitter, I use a little more for comic stuff. Instagram, you'll see me more talking about food or stupid shit, which if you find enjoyable, by all means, I talk about a lot of stupid shit. Um, and by August, I don't know if you'll know what else is happening but i will say keep an eye on me in the fall i have uh at least one major announcement that i is already in progress that i will maybe tell uh some off the air folks after the show but uh that should be known by the fall i might be teasing it before then everything is so fluid folks like it, it, trust me we're just kind of like excited to tell you things when we can because with the world as it is is a little bit more uh things fluctuate a little bit more uh, than they did when when I first got into comics. All those seven years ago. So, um, <laughs> but I'm excited to show this to you, this book that's coming up. I mean, Marvel has set me up with the best possible creative team I could imagine. Uh, and it's a character that I have a, have a great love for and excitement for. So that's coming. Uh, there's some non-mutants, non-Marvel announcements coming up uh as well thanks a book honestly a book coming out that i've been working on for over four years now in secret which is painful you know i am both a gossip uh and a, a and a queer man which like triple and, <laughs> and, like makes exponential the gossip tendencies so the fact that i haven't spoiled this is genuinely astounding to me and i think i can finally talk about it in the fall so keep an eye there and yeah please follow marauders if you haven't been reading it uh listen every comic book needs sales right now to keep going so please check it out please know uh, i mean this book a lot is coming and there are revelations that are going to reflect not just in marauders but in x-men in krakow in general uh provided we stick to landing which we're trying hard as fuck to do uh you're gonna find out uh new ways that things are connected Uh, that that hopefully come uh, as an exciting surprise and it's gonna be there, it's gonna be a Marauder. So if you haven't been following it, you've been waiting for the trade, we certainly need that love uh, and I would appreciate it. And we will reward you with foundational revelations about Krakoa and the experience I had when I picked up uh, new X-Men all the way back in the early 2000s, because you will be able to get in on page one uh, with a huge new part of X-Men lore and you can be there when it starts. So I would get on this book if you're not reading it. Uh, And if you are, we love you and we're pretty thankful for it.
0: I adore your writing brain. I adore your respect and reverence for what has come before, even the obscure. I love when you pull in characters that I do not anticipate. Uh, I think you're wonderful. Thank you, thank you for this time today. I know you're so busy, uh, but it's great to see you, man. Thank you very much
3: you're welcome and you even got me without the air conditioning noise so it's good you, you, you can tell your viewers how much i am not sweating uh which is really exciting because you know, it has been
0: so it has been 106 recently in salt lake city which is not okay yeah but you
3: live in a traditionally hot area at least I yeah but not
0: 106 i share nature girls rage i get it <laughs> well, you're gonna regret that in a couple weeks but, uh, all right everybody hey thank you we'll see you back here uh soon on uh gray lane Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you can help Gray Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing. But also, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane.